Well, there's a lot of great stuff in store for this month's podcast. Let's dive hey, right Paul, in. you Go can't ahead. do that. What? Why not? Wait a minute. Who are you? I'm Chris, your new conductor. Conductor? I don't need a conductor. Joe said he wants you going out with a full crew from now on. Sorry. How long have you even been on the property? Hey, man, I just started. This is my first trip marked up as a conductor. Oh, great, a new guy. I hate new guys. Fine. Well, can we go now, Mr. Conductor? Nope. Why not? I've got a show to get on the road here. You can't go anywhere with that red signal staring us. You need to call a dispatcher. Dispatcher? Red signal? Yep. That new dispatcher, Jim. He's pretty anal about the rules. He'll turn us in in a second. If we pass that signal without permission, it's over. This is dumb. You realize that, right? Hey, I don't make the rules. All right, fine. What am I supposed to uh, do? Who am I supposed to call anyway? We're the JMRHP2. Okay, JMRHP2 calling podcast dispatcher over. JMRHP2 calling the podcast dispatcher over. Podcast dispatcher answering. Who's calling? Over. JMRHP2 dispatch. We're apparently staring at a red signal, and we'd like to get this podcast moving. Please? Yeah, JMRHP2, I'm having trouble with that signal. I'm going to have to give you permission to pass that stop. What's your leader number? Uh, Conductor, what's our leader number? This is so dumb. 713, Paul. How'd you come up with that? It's the month in the year. Besides, that's what Jim told me it was. So he already knows what it is? Dispatcher, it's 713, dispatch. Are you ready to copy? I was ready to copy five minutes ago. The attitude won't speed this up any bit at all. I'll have you know that this guy called Lionel Strang keeps calling me Steve, and he's been in podcast purgatory for months. So watch it. Podcast, JMRHP2, with the MRH713 in the lead after stopping, has permission to pass stop signal at CP start and proceed from the single track to single track in an east direction. Over. Okay, dispatch, I have it. Uh, repeat it back, please. Podcast JMRHP2 with the MRH713 in the lead after stopping has permission to pass the stop signal at CP start and proceed from the single track to single track in an east direction. Over. Well, all right. That's a good repeat, even with the attitude. Time effective, um, 417. Uh, My dispatcher's initials, JRL. Okay. Time effective, 417. Repeat my initials, please. Dispatcher initials, JRL. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great trip. A late trip is more like it. <laughs> what was that, 713? Oops. I said affirmative dispatch. We'll be on our way. Finally. I heard that.
and welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Got an interesting show for you today. I'm uh, going to have Mike Rose on. He's going to talk about uh, your signature scene. That was the uh, May article he did for MRH about that signature piece that uh, people really noticed. Then we're going to talk about freight car trucks, the evolutionary development. That goes back to the article by Richard Hendrickson. And then lastly, special guest joining us today is Bert Gummer. You'll enjoy Bert. A lot of you may know Bert, but you'll find out more about him later. Now, today's show marks a big change for model railroad hobbyists. We are going to add two hosts to the program. We've got Jim Lincoln and we've got Christopher Almarez. So, tell you what, welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Chris, why don't you start out? Give us a little background as to who you are and why you're here. Well, I'm uh, hopelessly addicted to model railroading is why I'm here, and I've been doing it since I've been a really small kid. More interested into the prototype side of modeling. I've been exposed to it pretty much as a teenager, grew up a a teenage model railroader. It was great having a, a mentor. My dad really wasn't into model railroading, so being part of a club really got me into the detail side of things. And I now work for Microscale as, in research and development and product management for new decal sets and new products coming out of the company. Okay. What kind of areas of modeling do you like to follow? I, I really enjoy freight car modeling. Uh, I do a lot of locomotive modeling. Probably my favorite part is uh, I, I worked with uh, my mentor in uh, the San Luis Obispo Marrero Club. We worked together developing Fremo. And I, I, I enjoy doing the, the actual scenes, replicating actual scenes that are that exist in real life. So I have kind of a diverse interest base. It sort of goes around to whatever it hits my mood, you know. Okay. Jim, uh, tell us a little bit, uh, a little bit about yourself. A little bit? A little bit. Just a little bit. Okay. About 10 minutes worth. 10 minutes. Chris didn't talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, okay. you can think you're of my follow-up. extra five if you want, Jim. <laughs> yeah, you're the cleanup batter, Jim, so <clears throat> it's on you. Oh, the color guy, right? Yeah, the color guy. Um, I am uh, a prototype railroader. Uh, I work as an assistant conductor for the Massachusetts Bay Commuter Railroad, MBCR, who run the trains for the MBTA, which is the commuter rail system in Boston. done that for two years. Before that, I worked as a conductor for CSX, and uh, people, I've written a few, um, two, not a few, two articles that have appeared in uh, Model Railroad Planning. Um, 2010-2012, I've been on a bunch of podcasts uh, uh, as well, uh, and I always considered myself uh, a modeler who happened to work for the railroad. I've been uh, interested in model trains for as long as I can remember, and interested in trains in general for that long. My grandfather was uh, into model trains, and my father did a little dabbled in it, but he's never really been... Uh, interested, so I get it from my grandfather. My great grandfather worked for the railroad uh, for the Boston and Maine. Um, not that I knew him, uh, but I have his uh, keys. I have his switch keys. And uh, I'm saying I'm a lot. Uh, 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 
um, again, I say it again, but um, 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 Christopher, can you give us a num? Oh. Um, okay, so, uh, Yeah, that was actually pretty good. Um, so, Gary and Chan in the middle of June. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the short, that's the short, short version. But uh, okay, you know, but you know, always interested in trains. You know, you come into, you know, you start working for the prototype railroader as a prototype railroader, uh, and you have to learn a bunch of things, which is. Yeah, also, I mean, I was also a rail fan. You have to put the hobby in second place because railroading is not dangerous, but it's unforgiving. And I have come close to dying on a couple of occasions because of poor decisions. Uh, and thankfully, I was paying enough attention where I did not get bitten by it, shall we say. Uh, but it's very easy, can can happen very quickly. Uh, anyway, um, God, I'm saying that a lot. Drive me crazy. Um, so you have to unlearn a bunch of things. You know, the way that you would approach switching, for instance, as a modeler, is totally different. Than how you do it as a prototype railroader. Prototype as a prototype railroader, you're trying to economize everything because don't you walk a lot. In an example I've given it in a bunch of other places, I spent a day switching, and there was an engineer that very knowledgeable. He been been on the railroad for a long, long time. Younger guy. I mean, he wasn't like fifty. He wasn't um, seventy years old, sixty-five years. Oh, you know. oh, watch it, watch it. Dangerous ground here. But. Uh, <laughs> I, I I had done a bunch of switching, and I get back up into the locomotive, and I'm sweating buckets, and he said, ah, so, have fun out there? Well, you know, it is what it is, and I'm trying, and he says, you know, if you had just done this in the beginning, you would have saved yourself 12 moves. You know, something, Jim, <laughs> and, uh, that I and, realized was yeah. uh, a lot of the switching is really done in the yard, and then you actually go out to yes. the place and just spot the cars. You know, you, all your moves are kind of done ahead of time, and you just execute yes. them when you're at the facility. I didn't realize that when until I was working with my friend Chris Lemoth, who works for BNSF. I was on Tim Dickinson's layout, and he's just like, let's just do all of our switching here in the yard. We, I mean, we don't need to bug a dispatch I, or anything. I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense. Let's do it, you know. We, we well, ended up finishing up the job in, like, 20 minutes, and uh, Tim was planning us to be at it all day. <laughs> well, right, because you have place to do it. That's the thing is a lot of times you're out on a main line. This actually happened. This, what the, this quote that I'm about to give you, where uh, in Westboro Yard, there were, uh, each end is electrically locked. And on the west end, you would come in and you'd have to switch the cars for sacks. And they, and they sacks uh, on the one particular job, you have to switch the cars for sacks. And a lot, a lot of times, like, there's... 30 cars on this track and they want certain ones out and you have a list and they have to go in door order one through eight. And so you, I've got a list and it says this, this car at door one, door two, door three, door four. And so, and so you got to pick them out of the, this line of 30 cars. Well, sometimes you had, there was like six cars between there was, there was room for six cars in the engine between the derail and the switch for track one on the west end of Westboro. And then you have the switch out onto the main line. On the east end of Westboro is like 30, 40 racks. I mean, 30, 40 auto racks of space. 
plenty of space to do the switching down there. But then you're holding on to all 35 cars while you're switching, which is just a pain. So if you could, you know, okay, so I've got a couple of cars on this end. They're right here. Let me just bang them out real quick. But the, but to do that, you have to have the switch that you came in off the main line open. And there's cab signals on this line, so the dispatcher knows if you have that switch open. You're not throwing the switch. You're not operating the switch back and forth because the moment that you operate it and and line it for the main line, you can't line it back. So you're leaving it. So you're using the main line as your headroom, right? So I did like two or three moves, and over the radio, the dispatcher says, P723, you're not using my main line to switch with, are you? Oh, no. No, no. Uh, I'm going to be closing this switch <laughs> right up in about five minutes. Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I knew you wouldn't be switching with my main line. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Okay. Yeah, so that can aggravate the uh, aggravate the dispatcher a little bit. Uh, but, you know, you would look at things in, in, in model railroad spaces. You know, you're coming in at it as a, model, as a model railroader, and you're thinking in model railroad terms, which is compressed. Whereas this yard is a half a mile long and you're only going five miles an hour. So, and then everything is, you know, three to four, five cars. And I have to walk those five cars, you know, as I'm switching. If there's only, if there's only me and the engineer. Some, when we first started out, we, there was a three-man crew, which was nice. So I'm walking back and forth these five car lanes. So you, you learn quickly that you need to economize movement. Otherwise... Otherwise, you're going to be doing a lot of movements with your feet on rocks, which is kind of a pain, literally. And in Europe, where it gets cold, so that can be a be a challenge in and of itself. In the All right, snow. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I you know I had the experience of you know we went out on that job, spent an hour trying to clean out a switch. Oh yeah. Yeah. To with a broom. With, with brooms and fusees, and we could not get it. There was just enough ice stuck in the switch somewhere. We couldn't figure out where, where, this, where it was. There was just enough ice where you couldn't, we couldn't close the points enough that we were satisfied that we wouldn't derail. Because uh, it really, if, if the gap in the points is bigger than your pinky, if you, if you look at it and it's bigger than your pinky, don't, don't do it. That's that was that was the rule was so a flange could pick that much and yep. give you problems. Okay, it's not, it's not that it's going to, but it could. Yeah, you know, if you happen to have a car with a particularly sharp flange. So we spent an hour, and it's, it was snowing crazy. We ended up with like a foot, fourteen inches that storm, and uh, maybe more. I don't remember, but and so we called the the uh, dispatcher or the the yard and said. Hey, we can't get the switch open, so we can't get the we can't do this industry. Yeah. Oh yeah, the train master wanted to call you to let you. We're going to blow off all the customers. You need to go to Worcester. You know, you could have told us as could have told us this an hour ago. Yeah, that's right. Before we spent all the time out in the cold. In the cold, and so we go to Worcester. We go to Worcester, and we had to recrew a train, and they had left their cars out on the main line, and we had to pull them into. Um, we had, to, we, had, we had to set cars off into the Providence and Worcester in Worcester. It's an interchange. And then we had to pull the rest of the cars into Worcester Yard, the, the um, intermodal facility. Well, the cars were out on the main line, and the rule is that you have to have two handbrakes 
you had, we had the minimum of two handbrakes on the cars that you leave on the main line. Well, according to the rule, if it's a – these are intermodal cars. So they're – you know, we're not talking an 89-foot flat car. We're talking a five-well you know, five or three-well platform spine cars or well cars. Well, if it's five wells, there's a handbrake on each end. That's one car. You have to put both handbrakes on each of those those wheels, those head, those hand wheels. You have to do both of those for that to be considered a brake. Um, and on the cars that were left on the main line, the two head cars were five bangers. And so me and the, me and the, the conductor, we had to walk in two feet of snow or snow up to our knees for – the two two five bangers. Now a five banger is three hundred and fifty feet long. So because each well is about seventy feet, so we had to walk seven hundred feet both directions, <laughs> twice, in, <laughs> in in snow up to our knees, and we were like uphill both ways. It well actually <laughs> it, it, actually it was, like, <laughs> it, it, it was it was uphill one way. I, I'll grant it that it was uphill one direction. I'm not both ways, but it doesn't really make any difference when the sne- when the snow is up to your knees. Uh, that's right. Or, it was in a valley, Chris. So that's right. That's why it was uphill. Both. That's well, right. You, know, you got to climb off the roadbed <laughs> to get back to the locomotive. So technically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and then you got to climb up on the car to get the to get the, uh, the handbrake, and then you got to climb back up onto it to get the handbrake again. Uh, it was just not a whole lot of fun. Well, see, you just need Denzel Washington on your crew so that he can leap from car to car and spin the handbag brake wheel for you. There you go. Absolutely. All right. Denzel, we've got a job for you. Yeah. Or, or go into the Hollywood props and just pull out a blowtorch and just <laughs> clear yourself a path. Well, I mean, and and I'm not going to get into that. So I was, I was going to make a comment about um, – uh, whatever that movie was, uh, Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Okay, next show, next show. Then plan on giving us the critique. Okay. Give us the critique. Okay, and one of the things that the guys and I are going to do on future shows, we're going to have a kind of event session. If things are out in the industry that just drive us crazy, we're going to talk about it. We might also get into some of the discussion forums and just make observations of this thread, that thread. We'll keep them anonymous. But uh, just to give you a pulse of what's going on. But I've got to give a shout-out to one of our advertisers. I placed a web order at noon about, you know, almost instantaneously, you get an email acknowledgement of your order. Ninety minutes later, I get... A shipping notice from this from this supplier, and since I'm in the same town as they are, well, in the same region as they are, the following day at noon, which is when I get my mail, my order is in there. Twenty four hours to get it. It was Litchfield Station, one of our advertisers. I had ordered some tools, some LEDs, and so forth, and uh, so that's the uh, the 
haiku of this program is Litchfield Station. You know, because it doesn't, the point that it got to me within a day or the next day is, is immaterial. They had processed the order and made the same day shipping, turned it over to uh, the shipper the same day. So way to go, guys. Great job. It really shows uh, that they're interested in keeping customers when they do something like that. It, it's small, but it makes a big deal, you know. And the lady there who always puts her card, because I buy stuff from them, is Megan. So, Megan, we've never met, but uh, very good job for your uh, company there. Okay, and, uh, of course, uh, Chris and Jim next time will be adding their uh, kudos, too. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But first, I call your attention to a new product announced by Rapido, Track. What is it? Well, HO scale bendy track is three foot long flex track. It'll come out in code 83 and code 100. Get this, each bendy track section comes with four rail joiners. Just imagine how many second trips that's going to eliminate where we got to go back to the hobby shop because, oh crap, I don't have rail joiners. Rapido's starting out with the flex first, but it looks like downstream they'll add turnouts and crossings. In the interim, uh, Rapido says Bendy Track is compatible with all major brands of turnouts and crossings. Availability is tentatively late September 2013. People, that's only a scant 90 days away. Learn more at www.rapidotrains.com. Now back to the podcast. Okay, Chris, why don't you introduce our new guest and let's get this next segment going. Thank you, Paul. To get the next segment kicked off, I welcome Burt Gummer's alter ego, Michael Gross, to the Mall Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Many of our listeners might recall seeing him in their favorite sitcom and movie over the years. Michael is an accomplished modeler and is active within Fremo. So, Michael, let's start this off about how you became interested in model railroading. That is something, Chris, that I have uh, been passionate about since I was a wee lad. Uh, my grandfather and great-grandfather uh, worked for the railroad. My grandfather worked for the uh, Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, and his father worked for both the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, and uh, uh, the uh, Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, predecessor to Burlington Northern and Burlington Northern Santa Fe and all that other sort of merger stuff. My great-grandfather was a boilermaker, apparently uh, quite a good boilermaker when he was sober. My uh, grandfather was a, a, a switch engine foreman, lived his entire uh, life in a small town in Iowa. Uh, Santa Fe only ran about 33 miles in Iowa. He lived in this, the town of Fort Madison, Iowa, and uh, I, I, being a Chicagoan, went every summer to uh, see him. I was very close to my grandfather. And uh, that closeness came to be a closeness for what he did for 56 years for the Santa Fe. And so uh, kind of took it from there. Trains. Uh, I had another grandfather who was a firefighter. And had I spent more time with him, I probably would have been building model fire engines right now. <laughs> but uh, so I was a pretty lucky kid to have a grandfather who was a railroader and a grandfather who was a firefighter. The railroading kind of rubbed off on me. Uh, did, did you ever work for the railroad itself? Uh, as a matter of fact, I did. That was something I always wanted to do just to kind of get it out of my system, I guess. And so when I was working in college, I worked uh, in engine service for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad. As I say, I was uh, uh, in Chicago in the summer of 1967. 
I uh, put in applications at the Milwaukee Road and the Chicago Northwestern and the Belt Railway and Illinois Central and anybody else I could, uh, along with the Santa Fe, and the Northwestern called first with a good job. So uh, I wound up uh, being a, uh, a fireman. So I worked in engine service on their Wisconsin division, which at that time required five employees, head brakeman, fireman, engine uh, uh, engineer in the, in the up front, and a, a conductor and a rear brakeman in the, uh, in the caboose. Remember Kabi? <laughs> I, I, I missed the Kabises. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> so I did work summers for the Chicago Northwestern Railroad. Very much enjoyed that. So uh, in a sense, got it out of my system, except for the fact that i am been a full-time model railroader. So it's not entirely worked out yet. I recall you mentioning one time that uh, you were affiliated with a, a short line in uh, New Mexico. Uh, that- that's correct. Right. Boy, it must have been now about 15 years ago. The uh, Santa Fe Railway was abandoning, while well, it was still the Santa Fe before it was BNSF, was abandoning a, um, a branch line from into Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, from a little town called Lamy, L-A-M-Y, named after a, a Catholic bishop of Santa Fe, New Mexico, Archbishop Lamy. Uh, this little town, Lamy, 18 miles, essentially, from Lamy to Santa Fe. They never ran... Oddly enough, the Santa Fe never, the Atchison Topeka Santa Fe never ran main lines into Atchison or Santa Fe. Those were both on branch lines. So they were going to sell this uh, 18 miles of uh, a branch line and uh, basically tear it up, sell it for scrap. Some of us did want to see it go. Not so much, partly because of the history, but uh, also I was looking towards the future. Growing up in Chicago, I knew a lot about good public transportation. I've always been an advocate of public transportation away from just for people to be mobile and to get to their loved ones and get to where they need to go without necessarily having to depend on the car. So uh, I wanted to save that right of way for posterity, frankly. And lo and behold, uh, Governor Bill Richardson a number of years ago established the, the New Mexico Rail Runner, a um, suburban train that goes from uh, Belen to Albuquerque to Santa Fe. And lo and behold, he used part of our right of way to get into town. And my argument from the very beginning was if we sold off our right of way, that was one of our most valuable assets, uh, 18 miles of land, uh, about 100 feet wide. That was one of our greatest assets. And if we sold that, there'd never be a, a commuter train into Santa Fe, which is the state capital. And uh, but the largest population center is Albuquerque. So it seemed like it made a great lot of sense, made a lot of sense to uh, link them. Holding on to that railroad, preserving it finally made it possible. And uh, and thanks be to God, I also got my investment back finally. <laughs> when the state of New Mexico bought some of our right of way and they use that right of way to uh, to now come into Santa Fe, New Mexico. So as far as I'm concerned, my job is done. It's been saved for his for uh, for the future. That That's great. And, uh, Michael, this is Jim Lincoln. Uh, just on a side note, that affects me as well because I work for uh, the Massachusetts Bay Commuter Railroad, which runs the MBTA commuter service. Oh, sure. I'm a conductor. And we have two of um, Rail Runner's old lo- – well, not old. They never took delivery of them. We have two of Rail Runner's locomotives, uh, the MP36s. These were uh, These were very recent? Yes, we got them last year, something like that. I think uh, Railrunner just never took delivery of them. They were built. And so uh, we needed locomotives, and we got them, Railrunner. And I think what, one of the things that happened is the uh, the new Republican governor of New Mexico uh, is not following in Bill Richardson's footsteps. She doesn't much care for spending money on public transportation, so I'm, I'm sure that has 
a lot to do with the fact that they didn't take delivery of those locomotives. It's possible. Uh, you know, I, I have no idea. It's just, you know, kind of nice to have a couple of things that aren't 30 years old. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, we were, uh, when I worked for the Chicago Northwestern, we were running a lot of first-generation diesel. So I know about that, you know, um, spit and bailing wire, essentially. It was holding things together. Uh, I worked on uh, RSD 4s and 5s. I worked on first-generation F7s and F3s and um, uh, some old E-units as well, Uh, early Jeep 7s. You know, uh, I think I was even on a Fairbanks Morse uh, Trainmaster once. So, I mean, I worked on a lot of old stuff, and my only regret is that I didn't carry a camera in those days. Hey, Michael, Mm -hmm. did you ever work in one of those E-units where they converted the B-unit into a... You know, an A unit with what, what kind of cab was that called? It was like a Crandall cab or something right, like that. Right, I never worked. I never worked in that. I never worked in that. Our stuff was st- still the old first generation as built E's and F's that I was in. This was '67, and uh, they were making a lot of. Uh, you know, they were still running. They were still running passenger trains up. At, I mean, uh, aside commuter trains. So you know, the pre Amtrak days, we were they were just getting by. A lot of some of the newest stuff on the road was the Jeep Twenties. If you got something with a chop nose, it was very exciting because you you know you would it was just so new and fun to be able to see that well from the cab of a locomotive. Now, were you on the? Uh, this is going to go over some people's heads. Were you on the spare board for the time that you worked there? I was always on the extra board. Yeah. Absolutely yes. It was twenty-four hour call. It was a. It, fortunately, it was a very busy summer. I never had an, you know, I never had enough seniority to hold a hold a, right. a, a regular job. So uh, I was covering for people on vacations and sick people and stuff like that. And it was a very busy busy summer. Very often I would uh, tie up and they'd say, "Go home and get some. You'll be out again in eight hours." So mm-hmm. it was a busy summer, and a, but a good one. I got a lot of uh, a lot of uh, interesting uh, experiences. That's the one good thing about the spare board is you get a lot of it, – it's you never know what you're going to do most of the time. Exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, there was a bit of everything. You're entirely right. That, that was sort of a fun. It was always an adventure. So you did yard service and passenger and all that, everything? Exactly. I did passenger, uh, you know, way freight, through freight, uh, yard work, which to me was the most tedious of it because uh, – mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if they didn't let you run, basically you you sat in a switch switch engine for uh, for eight hours, and uh, as they shunted cars around, and you know, passed signals, and that was about it. So, uh, much rather been out on the road. All things being equal, if I could do it again, I'd say I'd ra- rather be a brakeman because they got more, they got far more exercise. I enjoyed I enjoyed my work, but I uh, I just think it was would have been interesting to be out and around on the on on the ground. Uh, rather than in the cab. I mean, as much as most people think that's a, a dream job, I know from my own grandfather and grandmother that the uh, the retired hoggers always seemed to uh, predecease. Uh, the men mm-hmm. worked a lot harder because they were just getting their exercise for a lifetime. Yeah, the the guys on the ground, and uh, it was just far more interesting work figuring out switch moves and things like that. I thought it was uh, I thought it was a little more challenging in some ways. So. Uh, I uh, I was a conductor for CSX, so oh sure, uh, I had I agree with you. Um, yeah. I mean, basically, as an engineer, it's forwards, backwards, and stop. Right, and you just you 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 sit for eight hours a day, and I just don't think that's good for people. <laughs> no, whether you're on and, a laptop or with a throttle in your hand, and it makes for um, 
on a, on a hot summer day, when you're out trudging around, because you know I did a we we you know we were two man crews when I was doing it. So uh, when you're out walking around doing switch moves on a hot summer day, and you know you heat the engineers going back and forth, you get up on the engine and uh, it's a very cranky engineer. <laughs> <laughs> no AC, no AC, and you're not moving. You're not on the road, so you're not moving. So there's no no air running around the cab. It can be very unpleasant. Exactly. And one of my one of my jobs, I mean, not only was there no AC, but the the water was supplied with a huge uh, glass jug, which I filled before the uh, before we went out on the road. I used glass glass jug, and then I go to an ice house and come back with a, a block of ice big enough to fit into a a cooler that we kept in the cab. So it was a block of ice and literally a jug, a big. Uh, I don't know, maybe a gallon glass jug of water with a, you know, a, 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 a handle you could put your finger through and uh, drink like hooch. You know, so it was, uh, it's, it's pretty primitive now. If it, if it says anything to you, uh, Michael, uh, when I was a conductor, we I used to go to the ice machine and get bags of ice and fill up the cooler with ice. And we didn't have a water bottle. We had plastic bottles. Wasn't a whole lot different. Your, your experience with the CNW, does that kind of relate to your modeling interest with uh, with switching now? Um, I, I, I recall your module having sort of like a switching plan to it. Um, could you describe yeah. that a little bit more? Uh, I am a Fremo modeler, and uh, I prim- primarily went to, uh, just a little background, I primarily went to modular railroading because life is busy in a whole lot of other ways. Though I had room for an empire I did not want the care and feeding and the insurance and the upkeep of an empire. So I went to, I was looking seriously at modular railroading because it incorporates all the skills you need for an empire. That is to say, planning and building bench work and track and scenery and, you know, everything else that goes with building a model railroad, but in a much smaller, easier to maintain uh, package. So, uh, and I was particularly drawn to Fremo modular railroading when first I saw it because it looked so, I don't know, it, it, it modular railroad, I had somehow never quite committed to modular railroading because a lot of groups I saw were, uh, it was basically a, a three, three mainline track with continuous train running and moving from a, a, a big cityscape right into the desert in the next module. And I don't know, it just, it, it just wasn't satisfying to me. I'd grown up at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago where they had an extraordinary permanent layout uh, devoted to the Santa Fe, as a matter of fact. I just wanted something that looked, looked real, if you will. And a lot of what I saw in Fremo, uh, a kind of minimalism, a uh, kind of less is more approach. Sometimes a module is nothing more than a single track running through a scenic area, not trying to crowd too much into a small space. That that had some appeal. So uh, uh, I faced, uh, I, I basically said, all right, this is what I want. This is the kind of, this is the direction I want to go. But then I thought, well, what am I going to do away from a me? So I decided to to build myself a module that could be used as a switching layout at home. And that simply means three small spurs, customers, if you will, uh, off what, off a single mainline track. And I, I, I tend to see this as a, as, as, as branch line. And I'm setting it in Kansas in 1954. 
on a, on a fictional branch line of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. I like Granger railroading. As I was in the Midwest with the Santa Fe, I was mine was the uh, the Santa Fe of of corn and soybean, not the Santa Fe of the Grand Canyon. And I was surrounded by the Burlington, Chicago Burlington, Quincy, and the Milwaukee Road and the Sioux Line, and of course my own uh, late lamented Chicago Northwestern. And so I liked the idea of Granger railroading, feed mills, and uh, small oil distributors, and perhaps cattle pens and things like this, but basically serving the agrarian community. So um, that was what I I chose to do with my with my layout, and I also I wanted something to do away from meats, and so incorporate making it a switching layout made that made that possible. How many modules do you have for that? Right. I have, I have three sections to this, uh, to this module of mine. I'm sorry, two sections to this module. I'm planning a third and they are two four and a half foot sections for a grand total. My empire is nine feet in length and two feet wide. And, um, that's all I need. That's all I need. It's enough to take care of. I've learned a bit about, you know, I've, I've learned Every skill necessary to, uh, you know, you've got, still got to install and maintain uh, switches and, and switch switch motors, uh, turnout motors, if you will. You know, op, uh, DCC, everything you need in a big layout, I do in something much smaller. And believe you me, it's a lot easier to take care of. Well, it's also a lot more fun. And also the longevity of this nine-foot empire of yours is a lot longer than a lot of permanently installed layouts. I mean, if there's ever a living situation change, it means demolition of everything that you invested into and starting over again. Paul mentioned to me uh, a layout that was moved over to the shop. It it just never quite was the same, you know, after trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And the, the nice thing about having a couple sections is you get the opportunity to take pictures for you know, publications, you, you can take them to a public meet and display them and um, design an operating scheme with them. And your layout becomes more than two foot by nine foot at a meet. You you end up with this gigantic layout where, you know, it, it's always kind of changing every time you set it up. So it, it really holds on to an, an, an interest a little bit longer because it, the challenge is different every time it's set up. I think I think you're right, and I don't. When I want to operate it alone at home, I'm fine. I don't need 24 24 guests to help me operate this thing. Right. You know, I don't have to get a, a crowd together. And uh, when I want a crowd, I go to a meet, and that's a whole different experience. So it's the experience is really uh, wonderful in that way, and in, in that it's so varied. Michael, you're also uh, doing some weathering clinics. Would you mind describing that a little bit more, too? Yeah. Uh, you know, I I actually loved, even when I was a kid, with my first tin plate, if you will, the Lionel. I think in in, in an old, mo- Kambach used to have a kind of magazine for beginners called Model Trains. You know, I'd say this was somewhere in the 50s, and I saw a wonderful how-to. It wasn't really a how-to. It was just a tip where you could age your 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 cars with with talcum powder <laughs> so you know dull them down and so i used to take my lionel stuff when i was you know 10 12 years of age 
and um, go get the, the baby powder and <laughs> brush it along the sides uh, in the same way as you would pastels these days to, to age my fleet of uh, Lionel cars. I was always interested in getting close up and realistic and as close to realism as I could get. So weathering has always been of great interest to me. Just adding adding that final touch so things don't – I just – it's my own thing. I just don't like when things look like toys. It's just my own, you know, thing. That's why I never went into tin plate, never followed it up as much as I loved it. Sold that and just tried to get as close to realism as I could. And to me, uh, weathering was very much a part of that. And I've learned a great much of my weathering from people in the uh, uh, military and the military in armor modelers who I think are years beyond most model railroaders in terms of the techniques and the uh, the methods they use uh, and the, the materials. Uh, they, I also think their paints are better, too. Well, and what's interesting, too, almost always use acrylic. Uh, many, many of them don't know what the name Flocal means. Of course, that, that'll be one for the rest of us soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There are... So that's not going to affect anybody in the in the military modelers because they they don't they don't use that stuff much. They they've been using the Europeans and uh, started it with the use of acrylics, possibly because of their environmental laws. I don't know, but they've really perfected acrylic paints, and uh, I think it behooves us to learn as much about them as we can because there's some extraordinary stuff out there and techniques. And one of my favorite books is actually uh, regular magazines is Fine Scale Modeler, uh, because I I like to look at what the military guys are doing with their weathering, because I think they're far and away above what most modelers are doing. Not every modeler, but most. And so I've learned a lot of techniques from them. And the weathering clinic, I intend to give again at the uh, prototype modelers meet in Lyle, Illinois, in October, if I can be there. I will be giving that... uh, it used to be the Naperville meet, but now it's will be held this year in Lyle, Illinois. Uh, I will be presenting there, among other places, and at an NMRA meet in September here on the uh, on the Pacific Coast. So uh, just you know, getting the word out. Uh, this is a lot of the techniques. I think are pretty simple. You just uh, need to throw yourself into it, make a few mistakes, and get you know, a. But it depends on what you want. That's the beauty about this hobby too. There are people who want to run things out of the box. And just get a long train and watch it run around. And I say, more power to them. That's their hobby. My hobby is a little different. And I don't begrudge them what they're doing any more than they should begrudge me what I. I just have a different different set of standards. And not to say they're better or worse, I'm just it's just different. And so what I'm doing with weathering probably wouldn't appeal to the guy who's got a fleet of 5,000 cars. Because that's going to take some time. And, uh, you know, there are people who collect model railroad equipment and never see it out of the box. They they just want new stuff, new brass in its original box, and they care as much about the quality of the uh, the box and the foam padding inside the box as they do about the model itself. There's so many different aspects to this hobby. I think they're all fascinating, and so I wouldn't – I'm not trying to push, you know, weathering on anybody else. I'm just saying I love it. For anybody who's interested, I'd love to share what I know. Now, Michael, wouldn't you say – because I know this is what happened with me – uh, and I know it was quite a long time ago, but your experience on uh, the prototype really affected me about what my opinion of weathering was. You know, because things, it was, you know, it's a shock 
when something is shiny. Right, right. The, just the other day, uh, one of our, I think it was one of the F-40s, comes around a corner, and we were coming into South Station, and the sun was hitting it just right. And I said, oh, my God, they washed it. Oh, yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> and they said, no, no, they've been, they've been putting new plows on stuff. It's like, oh, because the front of that locomotive is, like, shiny. Wow. Uh, and it's just the, the intricacies of a lot of the west, the rust patterns and things like that that you see, you know, just the, just looking at trucks every day, you know, as the, as the guy on the ground. I mean, you know, you, you're looking at trucks and it just the colors and everything of them, it kind of struck me. It, it, it really reinforced my desire to realistically weather it. Well, I, yeah, and I think even, um, you know, and I love what a lot of the, although I, have, I happen to operate in the, uh, let's say, the transition area in 1954, uh, I think weathering becomes even more important for, um, for guys who are doing modern era. With a lot of double stacks and TOFC, basically, there's a line of trailers on flat cars. And you say, well, how do you make those look different? And you, all you have to do is look at a line of them and see how very, very different they are. And weathering, you know, in many cases, trailers look an awful lot like the same. And so do the container cars that are on. Weathering really makes a difference. It makes things stand out. So I think it's even more important today with, uh, you know, these uh, trains that are all trailers, for example, all TOFC, uh, double stacks and things like that. Um, you can really make things stand out uh, and give them some individuality with uh, with weathering. You mentioned getting started with powders. A lot of people did chalk. Right. And it's been a progressive aspect of the hobby that, you know, then we transitioned to pigment. Now we have self-adhesive pigment. Brushes, you know, I'm constantly robbing my wife's makeup drawer for different foam pads and stuff because of what I can do with it on the side of a freight car. It's always changing. It seems like somebody's always raising the bar yeah. and making us become better. Yeah, I think it's an exciting time right now because when you talk about raising the bar, there are just so many Weathering has just become a lot more important to people. Mm -hmm. There are tools and techniques out there that we haven't seen before, and experienced modelers who just keep, as you say, raising the bar, and you think, oh, oh i got to do this too. And uh, like you, I can be found, uh, you know, raiding the wife's cosmetics, or more frequently in the uh, cosmetic department of the local drugstore looking for just the right brush. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes you feel like you've got to explain why I'm in the makeup section looking at uh, foam pads. Well, really Michael Gross that. doesn't have that problem because he's an actor, you know. It's just like, hey, I need to take it for a shoot, you know. <laughs> right. They just assume I'm going to put it, put it on my face anyway. Yeah. Well, I'll just start telling them, hey, I'm here picking up stuff for Michael Gross. It's for his new yeah. <laughs> You're my alibi now, Michael. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And do you find yourself... I've got locomotives sitting on the shelf there that once I learn a new technique, I'll go back to that locomotive and maybe put an alcohol wash or something on it to minimize what's there so I can redo it with the new skills I've learned. Right, right. You know, it's like patching cars. I mean, it's just never-ending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and, it, you know, it depends on what you're – what you want to do, you know, do you want to enter your car in a contest? Do you want to photograph it for, you know, for something? Do you, or do you just want to run it? Do you just want to have fun? You know, I'm, I'm picky about some things and then less picky about others. There are some things that I want to be contest quality and other things that say, oh, so what? 
But there's a part of me that's just obsessive compulsive enough to, uh, yeah, I realized I had the wrong underframe on a, on a Santa Fe boxcar and I'd completely done this boxcar with the underbody detail, all the brake system, you know, the brass wiring, the castings and everything like that. And the, the, the cross members are wrong. And I'm thinking of tearing all this out. And because it's something I want to enter into a contest. And so you, you can't enter it into a contest under those circumstances. So you just keep, you know, playing with things. And, you know, and other things I let go, I say, okay, this is good enough. Uh, you know, this from your basic viewing distance, this is a great looking model. And one of the things that, uh, that's one of the things that, uh, um, that weathering can also do. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you've seen some of the recent ads for AccuRail. Well, they'll take a completely out-of-the-box AccuRail car and just weather it beautifully. And you cannot tell that those are molded on grab irons, and not from not from normal viewing distance. You know, there's so much you can do with just paint. I mean, you can turn prefab track and make people think that it's all hand-laid, right? You know, yeah, absolutely. You, you can take... Mold it on grab irons and with the right force, light, and shadow, make people think that they're separate. Yeah, you know, it, it's just incredible what you can do with just a little paint, you know. And I think, uh, you know, and it's it's left up to us, after all. In, in every case, what we have is our railroad and uh, our railroad alone. It belongs to no one else. So it's our decision. I think of myself primarily as someone who's not always looking for photorealism. I may want that in a specific car that I want to just photograph or, or a contest quality car, things like that. But I think of myself as an illusion. I am creating an illusion. It's really very simple. I'm not here to create reality. I can't create reality. Reality does it so much better than I will ever do it. But I'm creating an illusion of reality, and uh, in a small space, that's a lot easier. I also recommend to people along with small spaces a small time frame. I run into so many people and I say, what do you, what do you run in what era? They say, well, a little bit of everything, which also means they spend an awful lot of money by going to 1954 branch line railroading. I don't need an El Capitan. I don't need a Super Chief. I don't need War Bonnet F7s, as terrible as that sounds to another Santa Fe modeler. I don't need them. I'm running a branch line. Uh, and um, so it, it helps you with your choices in the same way as mm-hmm. modular railroading makes things a little smaller in terms of uh, the work you have to do. Uh, deciding on an era and, and a place makes means you're going to spend an awful lot less money than the next guy who wants to run a little Pennsylvania and a little Southern Pacific and a little Jersey Central and maybe a little Canadian National thrown in. Either either that or you'll be able to put your money into places where you'd rather have it go instead of just buying any, everything willy-nilly because, oh, I want that. Right. Which doesn't mean that that's not going to happen anyway. Right. And that doesn't mean that I don't salivate from time to time over yeah. things that I think, oh, my God. If I could just – could I just change the year a little bit <laughs> where, I could, where, I could, where I could take this beautiful – you know, this is – there's manufacturers doing extraordinary things with freight cars these days. And um, I'll see a freight car and I go, oh, it's just a couple of years off. It's too late for me. So should I fudge my numbers a little bit because the freight car is so beautiful? But I'm, I'm, I've become pretty good over time just because um, I, I just I, I see people with too much, 
too many boxes in their home and boxes they will never models they will never build and boxes they will never you know models they will never run and boxes that will never be opened and I don't want to become one of those pack rats. Now, do you think present company accepted, gentlemen? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I am absolutely. I, I, there's plenty of things. I, I just sold something yesterday that was that. Thankfully, I was like, "Oh, wow, that's great!" And I got caught up in a bidding thing on on eBay. And there's something else that's like, "Wow, this was just gorgeous." Yeah. I mean, I've modeled in just about every scale, virtually except S. And it was just absolutely, I said, oh, maybe I can change it. But the amount of, the, of work that it was going to take to take this diesel to make it Proto 48 mm. was just so astronomical. And it got to the point, I ain't going to do that. You've got to look at your time. Your time yeah. Worth. What's your time worth and how do you want to spend it? Yeah. And, you know, so I know precisely, and I'm getting better, and then I'm doing a, it's, the other guys know I'm doing an N-Scale project now, and uh, I went – but it's, uh, the problem with N-Scale is they're so small oh. is that you can go to a show like Springfield. I've, I don't know if you've ever been to Springfield, uh, and they're just so small. You just keep buying them and buying them and buying them, and by the end of the show, after two days, I had 37 cars Oh yeah, <laughs> for a 10 by 7 railroad. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, well, I guess I'll never need cars again. That, and that, none of, that'll last until your next show. That's all. Uh, yeah. Say so that that's not what that means, Jim. Yeah. It just means you gotta find a bigger house. <laughs> and the sad thing is, is and everybody that knows knows me and went there knows that I was looking for rail box box cars. The original scheme oh, sure. rail box fifty foot box cars. And you know, there were two. And if you I don't know, if you haven't been to Springfield, it's enormous. There's everything you possibly could imagine is at Springfield. And I did get some from Exact Rail. They they had I was able to get the three that they had, and then all the rest of the thirty seven cars I'm looking at these things. Well, I can paint it so it's right. Oh, Lord. you know, That's right, right, right. Uh, you know, and then I come home from the show, and now I did get a bunch of like uh, I needed center beam flat cars and a couple of other various things that I needed. And yes, I do need them. And then I went on N scale yard sale, and I said, Hey, does anybody have any you know original scheme? Railbox boxcars. One guy says, yeah, I got the entire 12 set of individual numbers of Intermountain boxcars. You can have them for 15 bucks a piece, hmm. which was less than what I was paying at the show. Wow. wow. It's like I, sh I should have just asked on, on N-Scale Yard Sale first. Hmm. Silly me. But, I mean, then you, as you were saying, you, you end up having the money for, like, the switch stands and, you know, the little details that you may want to put in that you wouldn't have if you were buying the super chief with a turbo train or totally out of the realm of what you're ever going to run. Right. right. Well, you know, would run on your railroad. You know, you much need, you much rather need a switch stand or something along those lines or, you know, extra joiners that look like joiners or, you know, you need those little details, which can add up much more than you need a super chief. And, uh, again, arguing, arguing for small, there are a lot of people, and this is not to say this is a bad thing. Collecting is a wonderful thing. I know people who collect a lot of brass who will never run it. They, um, the nice thing about modular rareting is finally it encouraged me to build something. Yes, I had something on a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood way back in time, but this is the first real, quote-unquote, real railroad, uh, scale model railroad I've built since I was a kid uh, because I 
it was not as daunting as uh, building something to fill a room. Uh, so there are a lot of people who never run their stuff, and that's okay, too. Uh, you can buy stuff to display, or you can buy it to keep in boxes, and you can buy it to take out and, and touch and feel and put it back in its cellophane and put it away in the foam and not see it again for another year. That's another way to go, but I finally decided I had to get I wanted to do what I saw people in the magazines doing. You know, I wanted to run trains. Also, Ma Railroad Hobbyist has the one-module challenge going on right now, and it's now's a great time, more than any, to to consider building one module. It, a module doesn't have to be six foot long. I mean, we have some modules that are only six inches long with a pair of intermediate signals on it, you know. Right. It, it's just just building something that affords you some direction, you know, it, it sort of starts a cascade event. You really start getting things moving and finished, and there's there's a great price of having it completed, you know, having a, a project that's been laying around for a decade or so, and it's finally done. It's such, you know, a moving feeling. It's like, yes. oh, we're moving forward, you know. Bringing something to completion. Right. You feel like you're... You put that written that last sentence on a novel, and finally you can say, "My God, I've done it." <laughs> <laughs> Period. End of sentence. Yeah, there's something. Woohoo! <laughs> completion. Yeah. Now, Michael, let me ask you a question here about a prototype model or railroading now versus like ten years ago, twenty years ago. Do you feel like it's easier to be a prototype modeler now? than it was like 10 or 20 years ago? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because, um, you know, there are you know, several manufacturers have been named already here, Exact Rail amongst them, and, and AccuRail and things like that. Uh, paint jobs are better. Moldings are incredible. There are people who are offering fine details that you would never have seen years ago. I remember my excitement, my excitement when I saw the first... Um, the first molded Athern plastic boxcar in about 1957, uh, because I was used to seeing, you know, Tyco and Varney, uh, Ulrich, and a lot of other things like that. And then I saw this Athern uh, boxcar, and I, you know, and I thought, oh, with a, with a, appropriately enough, a Chicago Northwestern billboard scheme on it. And I went, oh, my God, it looks real. And I, at that time, compared to what was out there, I overlooked the molded grabs and the oversized stirrup steps and all that other sort of thing because up until then it was the best thing going. We've become, we've come miles away from that. Now there's downside to that, which is, uh, with so many fine models out there, you, you, you still have to watch because, uh, there are people still make, doing things and, uh, uh, for, for the true prototype modeler, that is to say, if you care whether it has, you know, a, a, a five five improved dreadnought end, and what kind of, and if it's got a Murphy roof and all this other sort of stuff, it can still be very difficult for you. You'll still be forced into a lot of scratch building. But right. for but for people who want authentic paint schemes, those get better and better all the time. The level of detail is extraordinary. You've got. Um, uh, manufacturers like KD who are doing extraordinary things with the, the PS1s. And, you know, the, I, 
I was so excited again, as, as excited as I was to see the first Athens in the 50s, to see um, IMWX come out with their boxcars, the predecessors to Intermountain, and uh, the, the first Proto 2000s a number of years ago, to say, wow, people are really doing this. It is more than ever the time of the freight car, I think, for prototype modeling. And then the alternatives to brass now are extraordinary. If you love passenger cars, look at what Broadway Limited has done with the California Zephyr. And look what uh, Rapido is doing with the Canadian prototypes. Uh, just extraordinary stuff. And the great name trains that are coming out with, uh, Walther's coming out with. So, you know, there's more and more out there. Uh, the difficulty is, I think, uh, people are falling away from some of the skills they used to have, which is to say, you may not need to paint or decal as much as you used to, unless you're really, truly a prototype bottler. And those people are doing a lot of painting and decaling because they're swapping ends and swapping roofs and swapping sides. And Putting on reway date, <laughs> you know. Yes, exactly. Now, see, I will frequently take a well-lettered factory car, but I will do reway dates and I will do repacking dates. So I will still do decaling and, of course, uh, using both dry transfers and uh, and wet decals. So. I still do that stuff and still paint things if I need to, but, but there's, it's, it's easier in some ways, but on the other hand, you still have to look very closely because there's a lot of stuff out there which passes for prototype, but the prototype never existed in the form that the car is in, not with the paint scheme. Jim, what do you think? Do uh, you think it's easier in end scale now to do prototype modeling too, or is this just something for HO scale? It's easier. I mean, it would be great. If uh, yes, it's a lot easier. Let's you know it, there'd be it, it's like anything else. It'd be great if X prototype or this you know it'd be great if Exacrail made beer cars in N scale. They don't yet. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. It would be great if they did. But you know, do I have enough to be credible? Where there's a yes, absolutely. Where it's hard is O scale. In Proto Forty Eight, oh, yeah. if you're a modern day modeler, which I am was whatever you want to call it it's very hard there's one prototype of a modern 50 foot boxcar uh and as michael knows you look at a freight train and no two cars that pass you are probably going to be the same even i had made a comment on uh, a show that i when i was working on uh, van trains on um uh, intermodal trains you walk down a uh, five unit spine car or a five unit uh, well car and each does there are four uh six trucks on it i think uh as i recall there's six trucks so and each one's different maybe the ones on the ends are the same but when you look at each truck uh, everyone's different most of the time because things have been shopped out and they they put a truck in there that's, you know, all they need is a roller-bearing truck with the right-sized wheels. It doesn't make any difference. But you'll have four different trucks on the same car because a, a five-well uh, five well car is one car as far as they're concerned. So there's five different trucks when you start looking at things like that. And only in HO can you even come remotely close to getting that type of fidelity. But it's getting a lot better in N-scale. Uh, I mean, a lot better. I mean, the uh, exact rail cars that they're making – now come with um which is unusual for most n scale things they're coming with the coupler boxes as integral to the car as opposed to truck mounted coupler boxes which you know Tyco and all these other things had for the longest time because you're using your you know you're you're running around 
you know, 18-inch radius curves or 9-inch radius curves in the end scale. And so to make everything run, they use truck-mounted couplers. Well, they, they don't do that in real life in, on the prototype. So a lot of the newer, uh, all the newer exact rail cars come with body-mounted couplers. Now, the railroad I'm working on doesn't make any difference because the, the, the um, as far as a model goes, the radius are going to be so big. Uh, it doesn't make any difference whether they're truck mounted or not. So, you know, I've seen photographs of what would be the equivalent of an 18-inch radius curve on the prototype. And that's pretty darn tight. Uh, I saw the picture. When you see the picture, it's like, how they can how can they actually get stuff around that? But it works with body-mounted couplers. I mean, you can't couple and uncouple on that curve, but... That that's not what they're doing. They're just shoving the stuff around the curve. But it is a lot easier, you, you know. It de- but it depends. Like Michael said, it depends on how picky you want to be. You know, right. if you, wanna, so you know, if you, you know, I think I think it's certainly easier to present. Uh, we get back to this word: to present the illusion of beautiful prototypical train than it ever was before. You know, if you don't look at the configuration of the ends or the exact roof and all that sort of stuff, the 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 beautiful paint jobs. The uh, the fine moldings, the um, uh, standalone grab irons, and all that other sort of stuff that's being presented on freight cars now. With a little weathering, you put that out there, and for most people who look at it and say, that looks like the real thing. That looks like the train I saw, you know, the other day. A lot of the photo- photography in MRH is, uh, yes, it's a model. I love so terrific, yeah. you know, sets of illusion in there. I just... There's things in there. The only thing that would give it away is like a boxcar is derailed in the yard. <laughs> you know? But everything that else, happens. just the lighting and and the weathering, it's just incredible. Yeah. yeah. I, oh, come on. That happens. I, mean, <laughs> I have pictures. <laughs> the nice thing, I, and I love a camera for modeling, too. You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of fun to get in and, you know, you'll just take a picture of something and say, how well did I do? Uh, I like that. Camera can be very useful uh, for modeling. Again, depending on how on how picky you want to be. You want to look at things at uh, the average distance, three foot distance. Fine, that's your that's your standard. Stick to it and 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 enjoy the hobby. If you want to get in closer, a close up lens can be a great modeling tool if you're really a nut like I am. And and the one nice thing about a camera is a camera doesn't lie. Yeah, yeah. You can you can look at it. Wow, that looks great. And your eye is not telling you that something's missing, and then you take a picture of it. It's like, how can I miss that? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And uh, I always tell people when you're weathering too, weathering can be easy, but it, it need not necessarily be fast. And right. the time, I once heard a writer say, the time is your greatest editor. You can sit down and write something, set it aside, and come back a day or two. This is why. Mm-hmm. I think drafts are a wonderful idea because you sit down and write something and say, that's absolutely brilliant. Come back a day or so later and say, what was I thinking? Yes. And I think it's the same thing with modeling uh, and, and weathering and painting and things like that. Uh, to look at something and let it rest, walk away from it uh, for a day or two. Come back and say, have I done too much? Have I done too little? Can it use something else? Look at it with fresh eyes again. And you, same thing you're arguing for a camera. The camera won't lie. And sometimes you'll, your, um, your veracity will improve with a little time between work sessions. We get uh, questions from new modelers at the store. And you'll listen to them and 
I mean, you can see the or hear the anxiety in their voice about planning this layout. And after they go on a while, I'll ask them, I say, well, have you laid any track yet? Well, no, I've still got to do these details. I need to know how this is going to fit. Do I put a siding here? And I said, well, let me give you a, a suggestion. Put in a section of main line. And if, depending on how big your layout's going to be, maybe you do the, the whole thing. But then run some trains over a part of it where you're considering how do the trains flow? How do they look from the observation distance? How will people perceive them? Then your mind will start thinking, you know, that will look good. I can put this industry back there. The track plan will flow. I said, you know, by all means, don't glue this stuff down until you're sure. And it goes to your point, Michael, about come back, reread the draft. That's exactly what you're doing. Right, right. And I, it was is interesting. Um, Mike Rose, I don't know if you're familiar with his layout at all. Um, I'm not familiar with the layout, but I'm certainly familiar with his work. I have the opportunity to be able to go down and work on his layout. Likes to have me come down and because I worked on the real railroad on the prototype. He's, you know, what do you think about this? You know, and a lot of times what he does. Uh, very frequently, he'll lay out the basic uh, bench work and where the track is, you know, the base of the track. And then he just lays track. He gets scrap pieces of flex track, and he just lays it out. And he moves switches around and see, okay, if I put it here, it doesn't flow. What do you think of the switch there? And uh, We had this conversation. It was a 15-minute conversation about where to put one turnout. He says, well, I can put it up here, and then I do this and this. He says, yeah, but it's not going to work. He says, well, why? Because there's going to be a kink there. Really? says, yeah, if you move it back here, then this and this happens. Oh. And then, you know, I, I saw it with all the track and, like, pieces and turnouts, just things just laid around. And he just posted a bunch of pictures of uh, he's finished all the track. Everything's wired. Uh, he's ready to start testing things. He, right now he's in the process. I think this weekend he's cleaning all the track. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad he didn't. Hey, Jim, you want to come down and help? Uh, no, no, I'm good. I think I have a root canal I have to take care of. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, and I saw the pick. I mean, wow, that looks great, you know, because he was able to think about it, lay things, move things around before everything was attached, and come to the conclusion, okay, this is going to work. Um, another good um, – uh, suggestion Mike Mike was saying is build something small you know, a lot of these people get put off by this big railroad that they're planning and you know build a piece of it before you start going crazy and what this big thing you want to build have you built anything you know yeah so speaking about cleaning track it's like the people with the huge monster layouts are like where do you find time just to clean track on all this? You know, it, there's something kind of liberating about just, hey, I have two by nine feet. It's great. I Cleaning track takes me like ten minutes, you know. And I did my track planning on a, a piece of uh, brown paper uh, on a roll that was exactly two feet wide. You know, the kind you go out and buy at, at your uh, yep. off the supply store. It's on a big roll of paper, and uh, you can buy it in white, or you can buy it in in brown, and uh, you know, they, I forget what they call it, maybe banner paper or something like that, but it's in white. 
but brown. It's like mailing paper or something like that. Yep. And um, it's, in many cases, two feet wide. That's exactly the size of the standard uh, Fremo module, uh, one of the standards. And um, so I just cut a nine-foot piece of that and uh, started drawing center lines and this and that and playing with things. And that was my layout. I could lay that out on the dining room table and play with it. There's something very nice about that. Planning in, in, in real dimensions uh, without, you know, the, the modular railroading, is, uh, it's an, that's another benefit of it. Uh, I planned it all on a piece of what you call butcher paper or something like that. It was, it was great. I mean, get get some snap track and some butcher paper and just sort of fit things together and put some alligator clips on there and just see how it works in real life. I mean, there's a lot of people that that can do it in in CAD and 3D and stuff like that, but there's just something tangible that you're doing, and you can actually see the end product and visualize it one-to-one how it's going to end up like. Maybe this in industry or these buildings might just make this feel a little too cluttered, you know. Yeah, I'm a great uh, I'm a great advocate for working in in, in three dimensions like that, Chris. Uh, a lot, in a lot of cases, I had a couple of couple of turnouts that I simply um, xeroxed. You know, I did made photocopies of turnouts and then used used them to put put here and there and see how things would fit together. And Chris will tell you he's he's seen them from <laughs> for a long time now. I'll use cardstock buildings. I'll just uh, use a chipboard to stand in. I have to see. Maybe, maybe it's maybe I'm devoid of enough imagination, but I want to see things in three dimensions. Will this be too high? Will the footprint be, be too large? Again, with Fremo, uh, less is more. I want more space and fewer buildings. I don't want to crowd as much into a small space as I can. And so I'll often make a building out of chipboard, a very simple footprint, put it down and say, wow, that's too big. I don't want that there. I'll make it smaller and smaller. It's easy to do with a, an old cereal box. Uh, a lot easier is to do you know, evergreen plastic. I think Dave Freire was saying he does that. I mean, Dave Freire even make uh, like one-fifth scale models of the entire layout. Oh, right, right, right. He does like little layout. He like m- models of the layout. I've seen that, yeah. I barely have enough uh, attention span to, you know, build what I'm building, let right. alone a model of what I'm building. Again, that's another reason for modular railroading. <laughs> you don't have to build the whole. You can, you can, you can literally build your, you know, build your module very easily. I, I, I think I built. I think I built the. I hadn't even, hadn't even laid track before I was doing the, uh, uh, the buildings out of chipboard. I just want to see how everything would look. That my and I didn't have to because it was so small. I didn't have to do it at one fifth the size. I could do it in real size and actual right. size. Another thing I like about modular railroading. Well, the the great thing too is you can kind of crop into a prototype scene. You can model number twelve turnouts, and you you don't really have to worry about like, oh, I got to make this corner of the room and turn ninety degrees all of a sudden. So I got to kind of fudge the size of the turnout a little bit. You can model it at size. Um, right. That that's a really unexplored aspect of the hobby. I think it's just now getting realized. Well, I'm kind of doing that with what the modular end scale modular thing that I'm doing. I'm, I'm literally laying my track on a Google Maps printout oh. uh, that was done that somebody else did for me. Uh, but it's printed out uh, 
and there's three two by five modules that but arranged in an L so it's ten by seven. But it's literally the Google Maps. I printed it out and I'm laying the track. It was printed out N scale. Uh and so uh it was scaled properly. So I'm laying the track literally right on Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. I I mean there's places where I'm even placing ties because I'm hand laying all the track. I'm I'm placing ties where they are on the prototype. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Not, not often. Not often. I mean, only the PC board ties. You know, PC board ties. Okay, okay, a tie goes here. And I, you know, I put a little bit of, um, what is that, a transfer tape. Put transfer tape on the back so that I'm able to locate the thing. In the... See, that's, uh, that's fascinating. The Google Maps uh, printed to end scale. I hadn't thought about that. That's very pretty cool. And it, it, this is, thank you, uh, this place is a place that I worked at. So and it's right down, I I've actually... Noontime today, I went down there and I'm looking at ties because I was trying to figure out a way to distress ties. I'm a track guy, and I was looking at ways of how to distress ties. And I'm looking at these ties, and it's a you know it's a industrial mm-hmm. area, and uh, the ties are actually in very good shape. Uh, I was I was surprised because oh, I'm going to dig all these ties up. And when I was looking at my pictures, I was like, wait a minute, these are like new. When I went, and I looked. There are a few that are distressed, but they're it's not. It's actually the track isn't very good shape mm. um but uh it, and but that's you know you're able to do that because it's a small thing you know and it's right. a it's a manageable project and all these buildings on this you know i have two actual structures and they're little shacks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's how far apart i mean the buildings in this place are huge but i only have to do flats Keep because they're so they're so huge keep it simple yes yeah they're so huge they're off that they're off the layout, <laughs> you know, there's two little buildings, they're shacks that are about 20 by 20 that I have to actually model, you know, and that's what it allows you to do when you keep, when you spread things out like they are on the prototype, it makes things easier and costs you less money. Of course, you have to spend more money on scenic materials because now you're building more scenery, but that's a well, different. Ground foam won't set you back too, too badly. Well, ground foam won't, but static grass might. Oh, right. Yeah. Chris, static grass will get you. <laughs> yeah. Chris will teach you to make a static grass applicator that, for about 10 bucks. Oh, the the, the grass water? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the MacGyver method. That's static now, grass applicator. <laughs> Chris, that would be a great article for uh, model railroad hobbyists right there. <laughs> it's an article. Yeah. It's already been done, I think. Uh, yeah, I, actually, should, I already I have one. I don't. Yeah, think I, I someone see- did like two two variations. It, it looked like um, the grass water, and then um, a more sophisticated. I think uh, Joe built one. Really? I think Joe's built one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty sure he had it in one of his videos. The five. Uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 I had to cough like right mid sentence. I had to cough. Oh. So that's great cough right into the microphone. But uh, no, he had the five disc set, five DVD set of like uh, building his railroad, and one of them was actually two of them are doing scenery, and one of them he's talking about how to build a. I think it was him. I'm fairly certain it was him. You know, you can build a, you yeah, can build a static grass applicator with these uh, these items. Unfortunately, Michael, it's been done. Yeah. Right. But uh, they will. Uh, it's only a matter of time before it comes along again because yes. there's, you know. Well, yeah. Now that people are buying the, the the you know putting together the grass waters, it's only a matter of time before the you know people are ordering more bulk of uh, 
the static grass because, you know, they need more of it and the price results go down because the manufacturers have to make more, you know. That's your that's your story, and you're sticking to it. I, I, I'm sticking to that one. <laughs> now, Paul had a question for Michael. Michael, I believe I read do or the spokesman for a uh, museum back in Baltimore. Yes, the B and O Railroad Museum. Okay, what a what a museum! What can you tell us about that? The director of the museum, a man named Courtney Wilson, and I met through some people in Kambach a number of years ago, and they were just looking for someone to raise the profile of the museum to some degree, and they were going to make some educational videos and things like that. And I said, I've been to your museum, I love it, I'm your man. And so for, maybe it's been about five or six years now, I forget exactly how long, I work with them chiefly on a lot of in-house things. They have closed-circuit television in the museum called the B&O Railroad Museum Television Network, which you can find easily on, you know, YouTube. The B&O Railroad Museum, the B&O Museum Television Network, I think they call it. But it, they take, maybe it's a 12 or 15 minute segment. And they take a piece of railroad history, let's say women in railroading or the B&O uh, during the Civil War, or I don't know, whatever, right? T- toy trains, something like this. They'll take a bit of history, and uh, and they will do a wonderful piece, uh, which I will narrate both on camera and off. And they run these on their closed-circuit televisions all around the museum, and they're probably going to make them available on DVD because they're, they're wonderful little capsules Capsules of Railroad History. So I go in every year, record these for them, and do any other fundraising, you know, activities they need. It's a very, very well-run place. It's now become Smithsonian. It's affiliated with the Smithsonian Institution, and they are one of the few railroads in the United States that, with a balanced budget, and they are in the black very well so they've got a great board of directors this uh marvelous director uh man named wilson as i say courtney wilson and uh he's a mover and shaker and uh, it's it's a beautiful beautiful place and they're they have a they have a great uh exhibit now and they will through the end of uh 2015 for uh they're basically doing a centennial of the uh of the, the of the civil war and it's called the war came by train and how how the railroad figured in a huge way in the fighting of the Civil War, and how really it was the first war fought with the use of of railroads moving men and material in a, in a large way, and how paramount the railroad was both north and south in 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 executing that war. So it's a great exhibit that's on now for two more years until the uh, the end of the centenary centenary of the Civil War, two thousand fifteen, uh, one hundred and fifty years. So they this. Uh, it's anyway. It's a great exhibit, and they have one of the most complete collections of uh, Civil War era locomotives and freight cars in uh, in the United States. You know, as you probably know, the first track for common carrier railroad was was laid in uh, in in Baltimore, and not far from where the museum is now, and uh, the Mount Clare shops and stations of the the old B and O. So uh, uh, they've got a lot of very early railroad history, uh, which no one else has. A lot of people may have a big boy or this or that, the other thing, but they have some of the earliest locomotives uh, ever built, and it's it's extraordinary. Yeah, I haven't been there in a long time. It's well worth. I've been. Uh, I don't know if you've been to it. This uh, interesting, obviously not nearly as big, and but there's a railroading and Civil War museum in uh, Atlanta. 
uh, in in Kennesaw, in oh. Kennesaw, Georgia. Sure. Okay. Uh, right by right by the tracks, and they've got the general. I think it's the actual general mm-hmm. in there, and they and a replica of the Texas, which were involved, which was involved in the great locomotive chase. Yes. Yes. Um, which actually went by on the tracks uh, that the museum is next to. I was going to say Kennesaw figured very prominently in that chase, as I recall. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and uh, they have a they have a you know uh, a the you know sections of the movie and things they have the the story of it that you can sit down and watch uh, inside the museum. I mean, it's not nearly as good as the B&O Railroad Museum, but it, it does have a lot of uh, Civil War history in that area. That sounds like fun. That sounds like yeah. fun. Yeah. Uh, the um, no, it's a, it's a fine museum and well well worth a visit. And it's you know very conveniently located between New York and Washington and. Uh, uh, you know, Philadelphia is not that far away, so it's 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 well situated. It's a, it's a beautiful place. It's and Baltimore is just a fascinating city in itself, in that um, uh, it has more more buildings on the National Register of Historic Places than anywhere else in the United States, oh. largely because Baltimore did not have the money for urban renewal when all of that was, when things were inner cities were being torn down in the 50s and the 60s and so a lot of those places were preserved and it's a, it's a great historical city as well mm. just in general neat now are you, are you familiar with uh, Bertie Kopinski's uh, model railroad he's actually modeling the um, in O scale he's doing um, a Civil War era I have seen the photographs I have not seen the railroad and I haven't seen it either but he's Looks like beautiful work. Yeah, he has, I, he has uh, Civil War cars that he has working brakes <sighs> on on the cars where you actually can turn the wheel and the brakes apply. Right, right. Uh, because the brake mechanism was so simple on those cars of that era, uh, not nearly as complicated as they are now. So it was possible to do it. And he has a demonstration on one of his clinics. Uh, which I'm told I have not seen this, but you know he has the car and he rolls it back and forth on the. He's got this board, and he roll and he picks up one end and the car rolls to the other end, mm-hmm. and then he he cranks the brakes on and then lifts the board up again and the car doesn't move. So they, oh scale yes. There's some people doing museum quality model, uh, modeling out there, and you kind of hope they've made provisions. For a lot of their stuff when they're gone, because it should go, it should be in the hands of museums. <laughs> yeah, you know, some of the work people are doing. Speaking oh, yes. of museums, uh, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. I, I when I first visited that in the '90s, it was still an O-scale layout. Um, I haven't seen the HO one, Michael. Have you seen it? I have seen it. It's really pretty. Uh, pretty amazing. It's really it's really beautiful. Now, having said that. I think a, a prototype modeler would have problems with it because they've, they 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 pack the United States into the into this area. <laughs> right, right. No, condense it. <laughs> Select exactly. The There's a they're you know they're very big on showing. Let's I mean it, it, what they've done is wonderful. You know Chicago, Illinois is there in all its glory. You know downtown Chicago and the outlying districts of the downtown and this that and then they take you all the way to Seattle and you can see the Space Needle. You know so if you like selective, you know as you say selective all in a hundred feet. Yeah right. So they they've packed an awful lot in. You know in that 
you know, but it's 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 beautifully executed. Absolutely, wonderfully done. Now I hear that it's pretty much an automated layout. Is yes, yes, right. They're just computers galore. And I've also had the. Uh, if you want to see computers go crazy, you should get to Hamburg and that. Uh, I don't know. Interview seen seen that. Miniature of Wonderland. Yeah, yeah, and it is. It's extraordinary. And they now got a. They were building a, a, an airport when I was there, and uh, I've seen the videos of that. It's taxiway, amazing. all sorts of things. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable it, what they've done. It's really incredible where technology has taken the hobby. Um, just just a month ago, uh, there's a a company that came out with a game, but the game is executed in, in real with real models and on a you know kind of like a board game where there's like a track and through artificial intelligence these cars stay on the track and use the computer to tell them what sort of moves you want to do i could see something like that coming to model trains as well you know this simulate traffic on a highway you would just have these cars execute their their path you know, and to simulate moving traffic, and uh, you just modify their their direction with the computer. You know, it, it's really incredible. You know, just the automation and um, the 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 level of control that you have now for like a locomotive and sound too. Sound, sound. Once you've heard it, you can't go back to silent. It's tough. Yeah, I know. It's ex- it's extraordinary. The essentially the microchip has changed changed everything uh you know it, it used to be it's in some ways you could argue it's very simple to uh wire a layout these days and in some ways it is simpler but uh, the the level of sophistication of what you can do is extraordinary. Right. yeah i mean to get it to run to get a layout to run and run multiple trains on it is far simpler now oh yeah than it was, but as you say, Michael, now you can do so much more that now the the wiring is just as complicated. You can, but you're you doing can, more stuff with it. Right, right. You can you can make it like anything else. You can make it as complicated as you want. Yeah, if you want simple simple running, yes, it can be do, it can be done. If uh, you know, if two wires. DCC is extra. Yeah, DCC is extraordinary. Now, Paul, this is something that he's been getting into. Uh, with sound and uh, sound decoders, um, do, you, do you have anything on that, Paul? Well, you take Neil Stanton, who's associated with Northwest Shortline, who redesigned the trucks that incorporate the motor. Now we have Cotto on the verge of introducing their HO scale P42 that utilizes two truck-mounted motors and flywheel assemblies. So that, you know, all of a sudden, Neil's early work is seemingly justified now when you've got a giant like Cotto uh, jumping into the market. So the next step, we look at, okay, now I've got an empty car body. What the heck can I do with that? So we're already seeing the evolution of the speakers with bigger magnet structures. We can get uh, sound inside of an HO cab unit and sometimes a hood if you mount it on edge, with woofers that will go down below 200 hertz. We can look at simplifying the, the wiring 
because now the liquid polymer batteries that the RC people have been using, now we're getting them into HO locomotives. No more cleaning track. (laughs) That's no more cleaning track. You don't have to worry about reverse loops. So I would say in the next five years, there will be such a paradigm shift in the technology, whether it's, you know, and it'll probably really simplify DCC. Sound will really jump up. Yeah, I think new things are out there. Even my wife, you know, she thought when I said, well, I'm putting sound in the locomotive, she's envisioning a boom box, you know, sitting behind a building that's projecting sound out. And when I fired up one of the locomotives and it went through the startup cycle and you could hear the, the generators, uh, you know, start to whine and the exhaust burble, she just looked at it and her eyes got big. She said, that is coming from there. I said, absolutely. I said, this is where it's hidden. So, you know, it's really exciting. And then, you know, Michael, you'll have a fleet of locomotives or are you already sound? I I have very I have very little because what I've what I've done is basically gotten rid of a lot of my mainline locomotives for the branch line and for right now I'm waiting for let's say the Athern Genesis uh, to come out with a flatlands unit the GP the Jeep Seven uh, I don't need a dynamic brake I'm a flatlander <laughs> oh okay so I'm waiting uh, they've yet to do one in my era that I e a zebra stripe. And so I'm waiting for a Santa Fe Jeep 7 without the dynamic brake. And uh, Really? Because I, 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 believe it or not, I have a, in my house, I have a Santa Fe in Zebra Stripe Atlas GP7. No dynamic brakes. Yeah, right, right, right. They made those for a while. I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't pick those up at the time. And I, uh, I do have a, a couple other things in which, in which I've not installed sound. But um, but it's only a matter of time. I, on, on. Did Aethern do that, Michael, with a lift-out dynamic brake segment where you could just go back in and construct a, uh, a flat I hood? I do not know that they did, to be honest with you. I do know that they have had – they do make a flat hood unit, so I just thought I'd wait for that. Right. Eventually okay. they'll do it because uh, those were fairly common. Yeah, aren't they just doing? Too. I think they're just doing nines right now. Oh, nines, uh, right? Yeah, they're they're doing cheap nines. They do have non-dynamic nines, but I don't think were the nines ever painted in the zebra stripe or was just the sevens. I think they had they they did have some zebras in nines. Okay, as far as I know, yes. I didn't know if it was outside of that era. That's all. But on a on a on a note of increasing. The technological advancement I am working on with someone else. I talked to him about it, and he says it's doable in N scale to be able to. What I'm the sound that I'm going to do on this thing is that it's going to be it's not going to move. I'm just going to have speakers underneath the layout for even the locomotives because you know this is a it's a standalone switching layout, so you're never going to be more than five feet, you know, from these locomotives. So I don't need to have. Look, obviously, you can't put sound in the locomotives really and not have it sound right. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to do, one of the, and uh, you know this, Michael, being on the being involved in switching and things. One of the when you're doing it for a living, you're enveloped with sound. It's just, I mean, the railroad is an extremely loud place. 
uh, booms, crash, squeal, all these things. And one of the things that you're always missing in models is the is slack runout. Boom, 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 boom. But you know, in just in and out as you switch. And I and I'm asking this person who's uh, into electronics: Is it possible to get something? So that the layout knows that the cars are moving and how many cars you have. That's that's the trick is, you know, okay, I have 14 cars on the runaround. I'm going to leave two and cut away with, I mean, I'm going to leave seven and cut away with the other seven. Can the layout or something understand that I only have seven cars and give me and have a microcontroller control the sound and have seven cars go bang, 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 bang. Right. Seven and only seven. Seven and only seven. And so you don't have just the tape recording every time the locomotive moves, bang, 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 of 10 cars all the time. But, you know, if you have two cars, bang, bang, bang. And he said, yes, it's possible. He says, I got to figure out all the parts and how to do it, but I think we can, I'm fairly certain it can be done. So, well, let know. us know oh. that. We'll be adding that to Michael's module. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> The only the only problem is is what you end up having to do is you have to put something in each and every car, each and every car, so that the car understands whether it's moving or not. I see. Yeah. Right. And so you're talking about you know twenty five or thirty dollars per car, so that the car will transmit something to say, okay, I'm moving. Okay, I'm stopped. Right. What about RFID? Would it that work? No, no, it won't work because you have to pull a thing by a reader. And so, yeah, it'll work. It'll tell you how many cars you have, but it won't do it dynamically. It won't. I see. It won't tell you as soon as you're moving. You need to know as soon as the car moves. I mean, for this to work, you have to know as soon as the car moves that it's moving. Well, Jim, I tell you what, I'll come to your place dressed in black, and I'll do the bam, bam, bam. <laughs> there, you, you just, there you go. I'll hide under the layout. The layout no, no, there. it's not the same. It's not the same. So. Uh, you know, but it's getting to that point. I mean, even Lionel, Lionel has um, cars that squeal. The you know you can have, you have brake moan, you have squeal as the, and and creaking as the cars go around corners. But and the cars make those those sounds themselves. Of course, that's O scale, right. uh, and you have to use their control system. But the the technology is getting to that point. So many possibilities. For, for wrapping this up, how about we just sort of talk about the September uh, clinic that you're going to give for the PSR and um, the October clinic you're going to give over in Lyle. Just sort of go back to kind of where we started from with that. Uh, do, you, do you have any information about the, the PSR one when – It'll happen, but just or sometime during the PSR convention uh, in San Bernardino. Right. There's going to be this NMRA PSR region convention in San Bernardino. And, uh, boy, I should have that right in front of me. But let's see if uh, it's September, um, September 25th through the 29th. I think, it, you know, Thursday, it begins on a Wednesday, the 25th. But the main weekend is the 27th, 28th, uh, Friday and Saturday of September. And uh, I I intend, I always say the caveat is, since I'm a freelancer, I don't, I don't I'm a part-time laborer, uh, if a great job comes along, I have to take it. You know, something that either pays quite a lot of money or is high profile, 
I have to go, but that's why. But but most weekends, um, you know, uh, Saturday I'm I'm usually good for a clinic, whether I'm working or not, because most uh, most film and television doesn't work on a Saturday. I intend to give a, a clinic at the uh, the times haven't been scheduled yet uh, for the uh, that September 27th and and 28th, and in October again if I can if I can get there, uh, Lyle. You know, I think it. I think it's a direct conflict with the setup in Banning. Uh, I didn't look at my calendar carefully enough, Chris. We, we're doing a setup at a in uh, in Banning, California, for us the Centennial Days. They're doing there. And right. Yep. I, That's the 18th, 19th, and 20th. And I'm I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at uh, Lyle now and realizing it's 17th, 18th, and 19th. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. This is where cloning would be really handy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And there's he talk about um, just putting together a little article for model railroad hobbyists as well, so they can get to an even wider possible audience for people who can't get to these things. You know, weathering is coming into its own, and what little I have to share, I'm thrilled to share with 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 others. And mine is very basic, really. It deals mostly with with uh, washes and highlights. The very basic dulling washes and and highlights. Awesome. Very. Very simple thing, just to bring your freight cars alive. Begin to build that illusion we talk so much about. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you for taking the time to come on to uh, the Mall Railroad Hobbyist podcast. It's a pleasure. Pleasure talking with Paul and Jim and uh, Chris, always with you. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But first, I call your attention to a new product announced by Rapido, Bendy Track. What is it? Well, HO scale bendy track is three foot long flex track. It'll come out in code 83 and code 100. Get this, each bendy track section comes with four rail joiners. Just imagine how many second trips that's going to eliminate where we got to go back to the hobby shop because, oh crap, I don't have rail joiners. Rapido's starting out with the flex first, but it looks like downstream they'll add turnouts and crossings. In the interim, uh, Rapido says Bendy Track is compatible with all major brands of turnouts and crossings. Availability is tentatively late September 2013. People, that's only a scan 90 days away. Learn more at www.rapidotrains.com. Now back to the podcast. Speaking once again with Mike Rose of Micros Hobbies. And you know that Mike uh, is also writes the Getting Real column on Model Railroad Hobbyist, as well as one of the anchors, long-time anchors, to the Scotty Mason Show. So, Mike, it's good to have you back. Good, good to be here. What I want to talk to Mike about is his article on developing a signature scene. When I read that column and started reading this, it's like, Several different light bulbs went off in my head. It, it gave a definition in a, to a process that I was struggling with and didn't even know enough to know. So how did this evolve, the signature scene? Well, I guess, um, I guess I should give a little bit of background on, on, on why that area of the layout even existed for those who are not, who are not familiar with it. And then that gives it a little bit of context to understand what, what happens next. Uh, you know, I have a pretty old layout, actually. Um, I, I had started it, um, oh, over 20 years ago. And as a matter of fact, it's old enough that when I started the layout, 
um, DCC wasn't really even in the picture. And I wired the entire layout in very laborious fashion for five cab rotary. So it gives you an idea of, uh, of, uh, of the vintage of, of certain parts of the layout. And, um, of course, then I went to straight DCC at one point, and then uh, in modern times I've gone with uh, all DCC sound. And each time, of course, that ups the uh, ups the ante in terms of uh, the engineering quality of your layout, for one thing. Um, and then as time goes on, hopefully you are upgrading your standards in terms of uh, what you think is is visually acceptable. So it's it, I like to think that as time goes on my standards improve and it's influenced in part by the state of the art. It's influenced by other layouts that I visit and, and operated on. So a number of different things affect that. Um, so a couple of things uh, have, have happened. I ended up deciding after an op session or two that it, it made sense to move my pool table out and utilize the last space available. Uh, an additional hunk of layout. Uh, the guys had been uh, pressuring me or, or uh, influencing me to, to do that for some time. And um, I finally succumbed because I saw the wisdom of that. So I ended up building this new peninsula. The peninsula design, which is something I think I'm going to want to get into a little bit more uh, in, in, in Model Railroad Hobbyist as, as time uh, permits, was at the time thought of as the last new section of my layout because the rest of it had been built and was in operation and was largely scenic. I wouldn't call any of it finished, but it was all presentable. I had at the same time moved my focus from being a, a sort of a freelanced, uh, you know, somewhere in Pennsylvania-based layout to actually zeroing in on a particular prototype, which was uh, an ex-Lehigh Valley uh, segment uh, in Conrail days. And I, I stumbled upon that segment uh, of, of actual railroad quite by accident, just uh, just rail fanning around in, in Pennsylvania. I immediately fell in love with the area. It was uh, scenically very beautiful. It it had the the uh, attraction of not being something that everybody else was modeling. So you know it was no it was no middle division. And uh, so I could do something uh, a little bit uh, different from uh, from the ordinary. And everywhere I drove around in this area, I was struck by how so much of it looked like a, a model railroad. Uh, we're talking about steep hillsides, uh, lots, of, lots of trees, uh, rivers, uh, you know, valleys where uh, things are all sandwiched in to uh, you need to go to road and a and a river and a railroad and and not much else in 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 certain spots. So if you're going to be a prototype modeler, you know you're you're going to uh, want to you know do something that that resembles the prototype as much as possible. And here I found a prototype that enabled me to accommodate some of the limitations that you get when you're building a model railroad in a basement, which most of us most of us are doing. So. The uh, the peninsula was kind of an odd shaped area to build a uh, a piece of layout in because I couldn't get a lot of contiguous running uh, with it. In other words, it, it was a big area, but not a a long area in terms of the um, available space. So everything had to be sort of curving and 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 flowing in order to get it all to fit into that area. On the Mahoopany side of the peninsula, that's that's where I built this this giant industrial facility, uh, some of which has been in in uh, model railroad hobbyist already. And that 
represents a, a large Procter & Gamble plant that's the major consignee even today on, on this line. And it was a huge customer for Lehigh Valley. Um, it was a major customer for Conrail. Uh, and uh, I'm modeling it in the days where there were both finished goods leaving as well as raw materials coming in. These days, and, and really from about 1986 or 87 onward, it was strictly on the prototype, raw materials in, but no finished goods out. They switched over to truck at some point due to issues with Conrail deciding that this wasn't that important uh, to them from a business standpoint. Uh, and they haven't been able to get the... Um, the business back to this day, even the uh, even the short lines. So I, I I chose a period of time where they were still uh, shipping out finished goods by rail, in addition to getting model uh, raw materials in. And the reason that is pertinent is that that represents about 60 percent, maybe a little bit more, of the overall peninsula. And the peninsula is divided down its spine, if you will. And on the opposite side of the peninsula is the town of Mashapin, which is where Kintner Milling is located. Uh, and on the prototype, basically, if you're in Mahupani and you just kind of follow the road uh, in the correct direction, you'll end up right in, in Mashapin. I stumbled upon Kintner Milling on my, on my very first visit down there in, uh, I think it was 2003. And even though at that time I wasn't planning on modeling this line to this degree of, uh, of, of faithfulness, I, I recognized the uh, the model ability of that uh, of that mill right away and, and took a lot of pictures of it and I figured well you know I may never pass this way again but at least I'll have all of the photos I would need to model the mill in the event I, I end up doing just that and of course uh, as as you could probably guess when it was time to model the mill I, I realized that there were plenty of things that I, I didn't have that I, I would like to have from uh, standpoint of photos so. To, to make a long story short, I, I probably made um, three different trips down there, uh, some of it with, uh, you know, taking new uh, or detailed photos of this uh, of this mill in mind. But in many cases, it was also because I needed other photos from that area as I had decided to uh, model it uh, in, a more, in a more faithful fashion. Because the peninsula has become sort of the, the sort of the featured area, of my layout, every scene that I built on it got extra attention in terms of its uh, prototype fidelity and in terms of trying to create the effect that I was that I was looking to capture. Uh, you know that elusive feel of an area that you get when when you're there. I, I was trying to capture that on the peninsula, so I put I put as much effort into doing the Mashapin side of the peninsula as I did on the Mahupani side of the peninsula. So when you walk into the layout room and you walk into that area of it, uh, obviously your eyes are going to be drawn to the, um, uh, the giant mill at, uh, at Mahupani, and, and people invariably spend a, a good amount of time asking questions about that and you know, marveling at how big it is because most model railroads, unless you're modeling a big steel mill or something, they just don't have that large an industry because most people don't want to devote that amount of area to it. But one of the reasons that that is a compelling reason for doing that is that now you have an industry that can justify lots of carloads, both in and out. And uh, from an operational standpoint, you can you can really reap some advantages of that. When you walk around the other side of the peninsula, 
what I wanted was to have Mashapin to be just just as impressive, but in a completely different way. So, uh, you know, my friend uh, Mike Confalone likes to likes to espouse the uh, the less is more concept, and I don't think that's uh, necessarily an original idea, but uh, it's something that he's he's uh, he's fond of uh, of talking about. And he's really done a good job capturing it on his layout. So when when it was time to do uh, the Mashapin side. Uh, I had him come over, and we spent really quite quite a lot of time, basically a good long day, just kind of mapping out how Mashapin should look, because he's you know he's really got a good eye for that uh, that small town thing. Much of the general concept of of what's going on in Mashapin came out of those discussions. I ended up uh, reducing the number of structures uh, of structures there. Uh, I ended up moving the track twice. Uh, I ended up doing something completely different with the tree canopy behind there. Again, as came out of uh, discussions over over photos and, and, and visits, it ended up being a lot more work than I thought, but it was all enjoyable. And the result is, is what you see in the magazine, which is a scene, I think, that when you look at it either from the general overview or down close, for me, having been there, uh, it, it it really captures the, um, the the look and feel of that little town. The proof for me was uh, on a recent trip down there that was really to go to other areas that I'm going to be modeling, like uh, Tawanda and Athens and places like that. A friend of mine who comes over every Monday night, uh, which we call train night, was with me. And while we were down there, I wanted to take advantage of the ability to show him some of these other areas. When we got to Mashapin, uh, he looked around the town and he said, boy, this is really weird. He said, I feel like I've been here and I've never, and I've never been here, but I've seen it from all of the structures and scenery that you did on your layout. And he, he saw the Mashapin Fire Department and even some of the houses and the church that's in that little town. Uh, it's all as faithfully represented as I, as I can, uh, manage in the, in the space that I have. The overview map that we're seeing in, uh, figure number eight, that's pretty much because that shows the mills, uh, U.S. Route 6 going through there, and the trackage into the mill. And then the photo visualization of that is number 12, mm-hmm. photo 12 in the article. Okay. I love the way the railroad just gently curves. Well, exactly. And, of course, the reason it curves um, is the river, cause, because the railroad follows the, uh, the Susquehanna there. And in fact, uh, this line was known as the Snake's Path because of its curvy nature. And if you look at it on a on a real map, uh, it's just a squiggle. Basically, it looks like curly spaghetti that's been that's been uh, dropped into place there. Again, because model railroads need to have a lot more curvature than the prototype in general. Modeling something that was already that curvy on the prototype had a lot of advantages. I should point out, by the way, that map is an actual Conrail map. Uh, that that was their uh, ZTS uh, mapping that they supplied to uh, all of their employees, and that stands for uh, Zone, Track, and Spot. It, it's it's how Conrail identified every single piece of track on their railroad, and every consignee. And every spot that you could spot a uh, a car at, it's all identified, and it's a, a massive document. 
Uh, I've downloaded them all. They're available on the Internet, and I'm only using a, uh, a, a fraction of what was downloaded because I'm only modeling a piece of one division. But it was a, a really invaluable modeling resource for me. How big is this new peninsula? Yeah, you know, it's it's such an irregular shape, it's hard to quantify exactly. But I would say if you're standing at the end of the peninsula and you're looking down to where it joins up with the original layout, you're probably looking at about 10 or 11 feet of uh, of length. And, and if you're looking at the peninsula okay. at its maximum width, it's probably about seven feet. Wow, that's still a good size uh, it, piece it of is. Uh, and, um, there. It is. And it's a great luxury to have that much area to work in uh, and with, by the same token, because it's such an irregular shape, you really have to uh, keep your head about you to, to do it justice. I'm, I, so far, I'm very pleased with how it came out. I have to say that another friend of mine, uh, Jim Lincoln, was was uh, instrumental in in some of the success of the uh, of the uh, Mahoopany side because it was his ability to do custom turnout building on site that enabled me to be able to have all of the functionality that I wanted without the limitations of using uh, commercial turnout geometry. So he he built a lot of subtly curved uh, turnouts and and uh, the track work there really flows as a result of that. So when you have a difficult spot, it's nice to be able to make the track fit the spot and not try to shoehorn it in uh, like we normally would do when we're using all commercial components. Well, coincidentally, I was on the phone with Jim last Thursday night, and and we talked at length about the uh, Mahoopany side of the peninsula. And the track oh, okay. went to the your P base site, and I was looking at a lot of the photos. So I understand what you're saying about his uh, abilities there at building turnouts in location to fit the specific need. That's great. If he had not done that, I, I would have either had to settle for you know things that just didn't fit as well, or I would have had to eliminate many uh, many pieces that uh, would otherwise have been desirable to have. So. It enabled me to not have to compromise uh, very much in terms of uh, having the same functionality as the prototype. And I think sometimes we talk about selective compression. It's it's not what we want to do. It's what we have to do because we can't do what we want to do. But Jim, in this case, has enabled you to do it. Now, looking at what is separating uh, Meshapan from Mahoopney, is that the big mountain loaded with some great-looking trees I see? Well, you know, I, I do most of my trees out of super tree material, and uh, I modify the technique a little bit. But but basically, I'm 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 building it not not too differently from uh, from how they intend. And uh, for the for the area that I'm modeling for the look I'm trying to capture, it it's been a very very good tree armature. Uh, and the only downside to it is that, like with any kind of tree construction, I think people will tell you they don't go very far. Uh, you can you can spend hours building. You know, I usually build a couple of box, top, box tops full of trees, and 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 by that I mean when you take a box and turn it upside down and poke it full of holes, and then you can put your trees in there to let them dry after you make them. I can usually make about two box tops worth of trees before I have to take a break, and it looks like a lot of trees in the box tops. And then when you start installing them into the layout. 
um, it does a very disappointing quantity of, of lineal footage. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can well imagine. So as a signature scene, signature piece, design element, is this uh, the first thing that people see coming into the train room? Is that part of what de- defines it as a signature piece? That's not how I would define it. The reason I would call it a signature scene is, well, first of all, a signature scene to me needs to be something that when you're done with it, you call it a complete success. In other words, you're, you're really happy with the way it came out. It, it captures that look that you were after. Uh, it is a... Um, from, again, this is all from me now. So, uh, it's something that if somebody had seen the prototype, that they would recognize it, perhaps. And um, by the same token, if they hadn't seen the prototype, but they saw your scene and then saw the prototype, then they'd really appreciate it. So, you know, all of those elements to me uh, combine to be something that, that uh, you could call a, a signature scene. It, it, it's, a, it's a special part of your layout that uh, not all of the layout necessarily needs to uh, aspire to, but the more of those signature scenes you have, in general, I think the better off you are. Okay, so you can have multiple signature scenes. I think so. Um, you know, when, when you think about a model railroad, and I'm beginning to understand this in a, in a better fashion now that I've visited a lot of really good model railroads. You know, usually when you walk around a model railroad, there are things that you're trying to emphasize, draw people's eyes to. And uh, conversely, there are things that you're trying to not necessarily draw people's eyes to, little compromises, little awkward transitions and things like that. I don't think it's possible to build a model railroad and not have uh, some of that element that you're trying to, you know, not, not emphasize. Um, you know, you might have a situation dictated by pipes or utilities or, you know, physical space constraints as you transition from one side of a peninsula to another. You know, it's really difficult to to do the end of a peninsula uh, in, in a very convincing way that it stands up to examination from any angle. Uh, it would have to be a really big peninsula to be able to pull that off. And at that point, you almost can't even call it a peninsula. So, I'm using that as an example of of, uh, of something where if you're clever enough, you can draw people's eyes towards what you want them to be looking at and away from things that you'd rather they didn't look at. So a signature scene to me is something that, that draws the viewer in uh, as, a, as a happy coincidence, draws their attention away from things that you want to de-emphasize. Well, and I'm looking at a long shot uh, down towards the mm-hmm. mill there's a storage tank and there's a Conrail covered hopper there. And the town in the background, it looks uh, like a photo of a one-to-one 12-inch to the foot railroad. Mm-hmm. Even the track work that you've uh, made look dilapidated. I'll take that as a compliment. It just carries off very, very well. Looks like a small town. You know, the, the, the paving is um, is actually pretty simple to do. I've, I've become a fan of uh, lightweight spackle. I think a lot of people use that. And for, for concrete or for asphalt, I'm, I'm mixing uh, uh, Bragdon powders in, in various combinations. It's a, it's a very easy material to, uh, to work with. Uh, it's very forgiving. Uh, it tools up nicely. If you mix up too much, you can put it in a jar, and, and, and it'll keep for a good long period of time. So I pretty much like everything about it. It's just been great stuff to work with. I stumbled on exactly what you're saying when I had a – it's so dry out here. I'd been using it to transition from a rock formation down 
it was probably two or three percent humidity that day, so it was drying out. So I just splashed a bunch of water in it and sealed it back up. And when I two days later came back, it was a slurry. And I went, holy cow. And it was a very thick slurry. The water had absorbed into the rest of the paste or whatever that stuff is. I took a old coarse paintbrush and just went out to the scenery and it just flowed on like a thick hydrocal would, but Interesting. I could work with it for 30 minutes. Well, I, I, for, I think I, was, I became convinced when I needed to pave the big parking lot at the, at the mill on the other side. And it, and it really was the, the largest area of pavement that I ever had to create. I had done things with plaster before, you know, big, big pores and all of that. And they're always, always problematic. And plaster is not nearly as easy to color uniformly all the way through. It, it, it can be done, but uh, it has to be done pretty carefully because you can really weaken plaster when you start mixing in coloring agents. And this, uh, this lightweight spackle, uh, doesn't seem to care what you're what you're mixing in with it. Although if you're mixing in liquid pigments, it does make it kind of sloppy. And 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 unless you're doing what you were just describing, it's not as suitable at that point for paving. So you know, we've had better luck mixing in dry pigments. And when I did this big uh, this big parking lot area, it it was it just went fine. You know, I had no problems doing it. And I thought, boy, you know, where was this when I was doing all that other work before? You know. <laughs> I guess I just didn't know about it. It's not something that uh, that I invented certainly uh, as a as a as a modeling substance to be used. Uh, but I, I was just a little late to the party, I think. If you look at the article in uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist, you'll see photo thirty, which is the uh, the elevator, and Michael's going how not to do it, and he asks you to look at the photo. But you know, you know, I understand you consider it. Uh, a problem, but it, to me, it just looked like an old elevator where they, uh, yeah, some of the shingles of siding was starting to give way just due to probably water leaks and age. I, I don't, I don't disagree. If you were, if you were modeling a, a decrepit structure, it, it was, <laughs> but you uh, weren't. You know, exactly. In other words, I, I was modeling this, this building. I mean, it, it hasn't been served by rail or, or functioned as a grain elevator in, in, in many, many years, even now. Uh, but it still looks much better than that result that you saw there. If you were trying to model something decrepit and, and abandoned, it could have been one of those happy accidents. Um, but I wasn't real happy about it. <laughs> if you're familiar with Mike, you, like I do, I own a copy of his uh, weathering DVD where he goes into weathering with alcohol in conjunction with Dullcote. Mike, what are we going to do now that there's no more dull coat in the world? Um, what, they've discontinued dull coat? Testers shut down everything. We've been told there will be no more floquil, there will be no more, and that also includes dull coat and gloss coat. Yeah, floquil, polyest, and... This was, you know, my understanding, the Walther's rep telling the store. And I said, well, what's Dolco got to do with that? Right. Well, it's made by testers. I never even I, gave that a, a minute's thought, but I can see that I'm going to have to lay in a supply. Yeah, I just took this stuff at face value. And I thought, well, I'll ask Mike about this when we talk. Now I'm going to go over and find the bottle and see who it is. Because I've asked a couple times, I said, you're telling me there is no more Dolco gloss coat. See, I... 
I, my understanding, what I had heard was that, like you said, poly uh, all the floquil colors were being discontinued, and I th- they were keeping, I think, Model Master and, and, and something else. And I never even gave the dull coat issue a second thought. Because it's I, I don't I don't think I don't think of I didn't think of Dullcoat as a as Floquil product per se I, I you know I was thinking of it as a as a tester's product and and I hadn't heard any mention of it going away uh, and Dullcoat is kind of a kind of a un, unique product you know um, and it's such a it's such a uh, uh, an integral part of some of the things that I do that um, it would bother me if it was no longer available I'm I'm going to be looking into that. When I get off this call, <laughs> what I've been told is the anything, uh, especially if it's solvent based, and of course, you know, don't cut the lacquer, and so it's solvent based. Yeah, but I thought the Model Master inks were solvent based as well. Don't know. I know the day that the announcement was made, the store had a run on Floquil. Dullcoat gloss coat stripped <laughs> stripped some of the some of the displays out in one day. <laughs> so and I'm going, well, daggone, wish I'd have known because I'm I'm getting short now. Floquil, you know, which is going away, but they have a talc based clear flat. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, the flattening agent in it. Right. So I've got a couple bottles of that, but I'm hoping this becomes like. Uh, hostess Twinkies and Ding Dongs, and somebody uh, steps into the breach and uh, rejuvenates the uh, the product. Well, it's it's um, it's a, it's okay to have that kind of wishful thinking, but it also wouldn't surprise me if they just didn't care and just and just killed it right off. And and that's one one of the things that's not good about all of this brand consolidation, because what manufacturers might consider redundant or superfluous. Uh, we might not agree with, but there's not much you can do about it. So, I will. I can assure you, I'll be looking into the uh, into the dull coat thing. I'm, I'm really glad we had this conversation. Yeah, uh, it's. Um... I've already laid in a supply of of certain local colors that I, I consider very useful. Things like railroad tie brown and and things like that. You know, many other colors you can you can replicate with with other brands. But I really like the the, the particular mix of. Uh, of railroad type brown, I like their old concrete. You know, there's, there's different colors yes. that I, I just think are very, very well done. Uh, Microscale put out an email which had alternative paints for right. the various Floquil polyscale colors. At the store where I am, we've ordered in a stock of Scale Coat and Scale Coat Two. I, you know, for if you're if you're talking about painting something from scratch and 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 decaling and and, and lettering it. Um, I I just I love scale coat paint. I mean I think it's I think it's it's fabulous stuff. When I when I started using it, um, any issues and problems that I had with airbrushing just went away. So I mean I'm I'm a big big fan of uh, of scale coat paint. Um, I tend to use the the um, the local paints more uh, as as um, as weathering mediums or you know for like i said for i like their concrete colors you know they uh, that tends to be a very nice very convincing uh, absolutely flat concrete color so you know i don't i don't see that 100% of what you're losing in floquil can be can be captured in in scale coat anything that you can replicate with scale coat obviously you should 
the other thing, and perhaps you know, you know, a, a center for Floquil is uh, xylene. Mm-hmm. And you can buy xylene very economically by the pint or whatever, even at an Ace Hardware or, or a big box. Do you know what the generic thinner is for scale cut? I, I do not. And, um, you know, thinner is one of those controversial subjects. And I, and I, know, I know people who uh, will only use the thinner recommended by the manufacturer, the specific one for the paint that they're using. Okay. And they won't even consider using anything else. I know an equal number of people who, uh, when it comes to solvent-based paints, just thin, ev- just thin everything with lacquer thinner and get great results. <laughs> so, you know, your actual mileage may uh, may vary. I know xylene's real good at cleaning out the nozzles if you use uh, some of the contact cements. Right. You use the uh, the control flows like Pliobond. Right. You're not going to get clogging with uh, with with uh, with xylene. I mean, it's an excellent solvent and. Uh, it's probably also a, a, a good reason for using a nice mark to uh, uh, respirator while you're using it. <laughs> I do it outside only. I do not do that in a confined space, only in the outside, you know, which we can do year-round here in Arizona. Well, shoot, I hate to have taken the uh, the blush off your day with the, uh, with the dull coat comment. Actually, uh, I think you provided a valuable service here. Okay. Shoot me an email if you find out that I'm in error, but... I've been told this by the owner and the uh, the guys that work at the store who are dealing with the supplier. So, yeah, I'll be on the I'll be on the phone with my Walters rep uh, immediately after this call. Very good. Just don't yeah you know, don't jump on him too hard. It's not his fault. He's just the messenger. Oh no, I just want to confirm and then get an order in. It's been a great conversation. You're a businessman. You've got things to do. I, on the other hand, am retired, and I'm just sitting here weathering cars. So What a luxury. Good for you. I know. Mike, it's always great to talk to you. You're just a, a, a wealth of information, and I like your uh, uh, contributions to uh, Scotty's show, too. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Hello, this is actor Michael Gross, and you're listening to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. This segment... We're going to be talking with Richard Hendrickson. Now, Richard had the uh, one of the main articles in the May issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist where he talked about freight car trucks from 1900 to 1960. Uh, having been in the industry for a while, there was stuff I was reading in there that I never knew. I uh, had no clue. Uh, I know when I have customers in the store and they bring in a car and they want to buy better trucks, uh, we have to go through a little tutorial of what trucks are uh, appropriate. Well, Richard has just laid that out. If you're modeling between 1900 and 1960 on freight, it's here. Richard, appreciate you taking your time today. Sure. I'm happy to do it. And uh, let me point out something that uh, I did mention in the article, but I want to say it again. Um, Okay. I have on the Internet a... uh, file that shows photos of most of the HO scale freight car trucks that are on the market. So when a modeler looks at a prototype picture and says, what is that? Uh, you can go to the article uh, in MRH and find out what it is, and you can then follow the uh, website lead 
and go to that uh, file and see what the trucks are that are available that closely match it. Okay, what is that link for the file? Uh, it's, I know you, there's yeah. a link within the MRH article, it, but what is it outside of that? I'm not going to try to tell you. It's very complicated. You'd have to go to the article to, to find it. Okay, I tell you what. For the listeners, I'll go uh, after this interview, find the link, and I'll just do a, an audio insert in there for okay, it. Okay, that'll, that'll be fine. Okay, so how did this uh, interest in freight uh, freight truck development uh, spring forth? How'd you get uh, started on this? Well, Paul, I've been studying freight cars um, since the 60s, actually. Okay. Um, because back in those days, the, the conventional wisdom was, oh, nobody knows enough freight car about freight cars to model them accurately. Uh, so just go ahead and do whatever you please. And I said, no, no, that's not right. And uh, what I discovered uh, as I started digging around was that there were a number of photographers, uh, Will Whitaker for one, and um, uh, George Sisk uh, in Kansas City, who photographed freight cars all the time and had huge files of photos. And uh, I started from there and uh, learned more and more, and uh, mostly because I wanted to model freight cars accurately on my own model railroad. Um, and, of course, trucks are a part of that picture. And, okay, yes. And in those days, uh, hardly any of us knew anything about freight car trucks beyond Archbar Andrews and, in quotes, Bettendorf. And so I just began gathering photos, gathering information. And, uh, of course, there's a, a great deal of historical information in the uh, car builder cyclopedias of that period. So I, and I have a, a, a I've accumulated a, a very good file of those car builder cyclopedias. I, I always wanted to do an article on the subject, but I knew it was going to be so long that none of the print publications would touch it. <laughs> and so at some point I thought, hmm. I wonder if this would work in MRH, and I got a hold of Joe, and he said, sure, go for it. So that was the genesis of that article. Okay, and so you you touched on the car builder cyclopedias, which they themselves can be intimidating. So I guess that was your Google for the time period. That's right. That's, that's yeah. exactly right. Okay. Well, it's an exhaustive article, and some of the comments and feedback that, that I've heard from readers – yeah, they're all going, wow, never knew. I never knew. Yes. Uh, do you have plans for additional articles that might pick up, say, passenger trucks? Uh, no. That's a, a subject on which I am far from an expert, and there are other people out there who know it better than I do. Uh, okay. I could, I could suggest some of them. In fact, when I talk to them, I may say, you know, hey, you ought to – do an article on the passenger car trucks similar to what I did on freight car trucks. But, no, that's not something I'd try to do. I'd I'd have to do so much initial research on it that it really wouldn't be worth it to me okay. personally. All right. 
So and and I'd say the same thing, by the way, about roller bearing trucks. The the trucks that had, uh, were applied to freight cars after about 1960. Um, I model October of 1947, <laughs> and, okay. and I have quite a bit of knowledge about up into the 50s, and then it tapers off. And so somebody who knows roller bearing trucks much better than I do really should do that follow-on article and again I hope somebody will okay so your main focus there is on friction bearing ah now I must correct you <laughs> ah, that's right okay go ahead and explain why I just said the wrong word friction bearing was a term that was invented by the roller bearing manufacturers to imply that roller bearings did not have friction and plain bearings did. And that's, of course, wrong. All bearings have friction. Now, roller bearings have much less starting friction. Though, by the way, once you're up to a pretty reasonable train speed, the difference between roller bearings and plain journal trucks is not very great. So that was an advertising ploy, and it was never used in the railway engineering literature. You'll, you'll never, you'll never find, for example, in the car builder cyclopedias, you'll never find a plain journal or solid journal truck identified as a friction bearing truck. So I prefer to use the, the language that was used by the, by the engineers themselves. And, uh, and frankly, that usage by the ruler bearing manufacturers sort of annoys me. <laughs> So plain journal, solid journal, either of those are better, I think, than friction bearing for the solid journal truck. Now, go on with your question. So the question continues with the proper term plain journal truck. It was into the 80s before those were banned uh, or legislated against an interchange service, correct? That's correct, yes. So they lasted a long time. Okay, and then you can still see plane-bearing trucks in captive service. That's right. Uh, in the 70s, we still had yard cars at ACF that were on arch bar trucks. Oh, yeah, sure. Where we shifted tooling and stuff around the plant and stuff. So, But you're saying that's interesting that at track speed, the, the friction difference between a roller bearing and a plane bearing is just not that different. There is a difference, but it's it's not a great difference. And uh, okay. the the real advantage of roller bearing well, there were two advantages of roller bearing trucks. One of them was that they reduced starting friction, which meant that a, a particular piece of motive power could start more of a train. The second re reason is that as they were developed and got into general use, they were much more reliable. They didn't require lubrication. They didn't develop hot boxes as the plain journal trucks tended to do. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a matter that that out on the line they reduced friction all that much, but they were much more reliable. Yeah, speed wasn't an issue because you touch on high speed trucks. I presume those would be on express reefers, express box cars, yes. that oh, type yeah. of rolling stock. Oh yeah, and the, and they ran eighty, ninety, hundred miles an hour, no problem if they were properly lubricated. Okay. Now, what were they lubricated with? Well, it was a product called journal oil, 
you'd have to have a petroleum chemist to explain exactly what made it journal oil rather than some other kind of oil, but basically it was a fairly heavy lubricating oil, and it was simply deposited in the bottom of the journal boxes and then wicked up onto the journals by cotton waste. Now, towards towards the end of the period when solid bearing trucks were in use in the in the starting in the fifties and then on up into the sixties and seventies, various kinds of patent lubricators were used, and I think those eventually became required by the AAR. They worked much better at keeping the journals lubricated than the cotton waste did. But one of the features of every freight yard, every major uh, railroad facility around the country uh, in the days of plain journal trucks uh, was a crew of yardmen who would go around uh, with great big buckets of oil um, and, and they'd pour oil in those uh, journal boxes. And by the way, the oil seals on the plain journal boxes were very ineffective. So those uh, those journals threw oil all the time. The oil would leak out of the journal box onto the wheels, and then the wheels, the turning wheels, would throw it up on the underside of the car. And uh, it's typical uh, of cars in that period that you would see journal oil thrown up in row up uh, the ends of an adjacent car uh, where the oil from the car next to it, would the, the wheels would throw that oil up there. And so they had to be pouring oil into it because it ran out rather rapidly. I've heard the term waste before, but just what was cotton waste? Well, it, it's a little hard to describe, uh, but it, it, it was cotton fibers that, that were not, they, it, it wasn't woven in any kind of cloth or anything like that. It was long fibers of fairly heavy cotton. Uh, it was a byproduct of the, the fabric industry, I think, and it was all over the railroad. It was what was used to wipe things up. Every locomotive had cotton waste in the cab because that's what they used to wipe their hands and wipe the controls and so forth. It was uh, it was very coarse, <laughs> so it was it was just like a, a coarse mass of, of cotton fiber. I also you know, presume then that that would wear out and periodically they had to oh, yeah. replace it. Okay. And you're right. I just, I can recall seeing just really grungy trucks because of all the oil sure. flinging around those little caps. Yep. When you look at the, uh, the evolution of the design from Arts Bar, which you point out in your uh, article, it's just really fabricated out of flat iron bar, I believe. That's right. And riveted together. So as metallurgy, that science progressed, is that really what brought about, uh, you know, the progression to cast bolsters, uh, you know, cast side frames and so forth? Well, yeah. Uh, actually, castings, uh, the development of large castings for, for railroad equipment, it was pretty far advanced by the latter part of the 19th century. And uh, they were starting to cast truck side frames and truck bolsters. Uh, and in fact, many arch bar trucks had cast steel bolsters. 
And, of course, the arch bar truck was originally made of iron in the 19th century, and then they started making it out of, out of steel bar stock. But the problem with the, the arch bars is that they were bolted together. If they'd been riveted, they might have held up a bit better, but uh, the idea was that you bolted them together, and then it was easy to take the truck apart, for example, to replace a wheel set or a journal box. But those bolts tended to loosen up, and they the railroads were not set up to rigorously maintain those trucks. So uh, it was okay if a truck was in captive service, and that's why the arch bar trucks lasted for a long time on work equipment and that sort of thing, and on cabooses and locomotive tenders, because that equipment was constantly serviced. But on a freight car that went into interchange service and went offline and sometimes was offline for months or even years, Nobody was taking care of it, and those trucks would loosen up, and uh, they'd get out of alignment, and in the worst-case scenario, they'd literally fall apart. So that was the problem with the arch bar. So then, I guess, according to the article, after uh, World War One is when, uh, you know, Bettendorf came out with the uh, their version of the truck that's familiar to most people, you know, arch side frames and the integral uh Journal box in there. Yeah, well, actually, the uh, the Bettendorf T section truck, which was the first truck that had the journal boxes cast integral with the side frames, that came out shortly after the turn of the century, and a lot of railroads adopted it uh, in the teens. But the problem with it, from the standpoint of many uh, railroad officials, was that if you wanted to change a wheel set on a on a truck that had uh, the journal boxes integral with the side frames. You had to take the truck apart. Whereas with an arch bar truck or an Andrews truck or a Vulcan truck, you could simply unbolt the journal boxes, jack the truck up a little bit, and roll that wheel set right out of there. So what delayed the adoption of the Bettendorf-style truck on a lot of railroads was the resistance uh, to having to do all that work anytime you had to do any maintenance on the truck. Eventually, they proved so much better in terms of reliability that uh, they were generally adopted, But and that did happen in the 20s. Um, but uh, the, the concept goes back, actually, I think, even to before the turn of the century. And then along with this, this progression, then companies were became, I guess, increasingly concerned with stabilizing the ride. Yes. Cutting out hunting, uh, rock and roll, and so forth. Well, that became necessary in the 20s as train speeds began to increase. You have to realize that freight train speeds before World War I were almost glacially slow. Uh, what the railroad we're into after the after the development of the knuckle coupler and, and of air brakes, which made it possible to run very long trains. What the railroads tried to do was run the longest, heaviest trains they could, and it didn't matter how fast they went. Okay. And then uh, shippers began to say, "Wait a minute, we'd like better service," and so they began running fast freight. Uh, and as train speeds increased, uh, they discovered that the uh, trucks that were then in service um, just didn't ride at all well. 
And of course, if you think about the difference between the weight of a of an empty freight car versus the weight of the car when loaded, it's very difficult to uh, develop springing that will handle both of those conditions. So uh, you might say that the 20s and 30s were a period in truck development where a great deal of attention was paid to improving riding qualities. And that's where we come up with the the development of snubbers and so forth yes. like that. Yes, the the aftermarket snubbers actually became very popular because the railroads realized that for a relatively low cost, they could insert those snubbers into a truck in place of one spring on each side and greatly improve the riding qualities without much expense. The various car truck manufacturers uh, went to work developing uh, trucks that had integral uh, snubbing of some sort, usually spring-loaded friction wedges between the bolsters and the side frames. And oh, okay. The the Barber uh, S-series trucks, S1s and S2s, had that feature. They were the first truck that appeared with that feature of the, of the triangular uh, friction wedges. And then the ASFA-3, uh, which actually was developed before the war but didn't come into production until about 1944. And the Barber S2 and the ASFA-3 pretty much dominated the truck industry in the 50s. And, of course, the companies that, that developed those trucks licensed them to other truck manufacturers. So the ASFA-3, though it was developed by American Steel Foundries, was actually produced by a whole lot of different truck manufacturers uh, under license. So uh, those those trucks greatly improved riding quality. And they're still in production today on roller-bearing trucks. Because I read in the article about the progression to where the bolsters and the side frames were actually interlocked. Yes. I thought that they all were like that. I guess not. Uh, before they interlocked, then what? They were free-floating? There was a sort of a fitting between the bolsters and the side frames that held them in alignment to a degree but the other thing that held the trucks in alignment was the spring plank. And the spring plank went across the truck at the bottom. The springs rested on it, and um, spring plank trucks maintained alignment because both the spring plank and the bolster held the side frames in alignment. When they went to the carefully machined surfaces of the self-aligning truck, that made it possible to eliminate the spring plank. And that was an important development because spring planks were heavy. They were steel, shallow steel channels. Uh, they weighed, I suppose, on a typical truck, several hundred pounds. And that was unsprung weight. Um, so uh, that weight hammered on the track. And uh, getting rid of the spring plank and reducing the weight uh, made a very considerable difference. And then, of course, it improved riding quality as well. I guess why did uh, caboose trucks change? Where I recall seeing a lot of elliptical type springs in yes. caboose trucks, well, versus <laughs> straight coils. Um, what brought that about? Well, um, the typical caboose truck in the early part of the 20th century was an arch bar truck that had leaf springs, and the advantage of the leaf spring, first of all, it was softer riding. You know, could be made softer riding. And remember, the 
the difference between the caboose and a freight car was that on the caboose, the weight didn't change. Cabooses weighed about as much all the time. Uh, whereas on a freight car, uh, you might have a load on the freight car that was equivalent to the weight of the car itself. Okay. So when you had a loaded car, you had double the load. Now, with cabooses, where you can use softer springs, then the advantage of the elliptical leaf spring is that it has inherent friction. So it acts as a snubber. Ah, okay. And in fact, uh, there was a period in the 30s when a number of truck manufacturers were using combinations of coil and leaf springs in freight car trucks for that reason, that the leaf spring would act as a snubber in its own right. I know your photos illustrated, but has your research also touched on the evolution of the wheel as it, you know, as the trucks progressed, you know, eventually we went from cast iron wheels to forged steel? Yes. What can you tell us about the wheel technology? Well, I can tell you that the cast steel wheel, as it was developed through the 19th century and into the early 20th century, was very successful. And they they didn't wear as well as steel wheels, but they could be turned. They, they could be resurfaced. And uh, they were cheap. And the railroads to be blunt about it, the railroads in North America were cheap. <laughs> they, they said, we're going to go with this wheel. It doesn't cost us very much. Eventually, as speeds increased, it was felt that it, that a wrought steel wheel that had been machined uh, was stronger and safer. And, of course, they were adopted on passenger trains, on passenger cars, uh, very early in the 20th century. Uh, but on freight cars, they continued to use the Castile wheels all the way up into the 50s. Uh, and uh, a car that had wrought steel wheels, in those days, there was some stenciling somewhere on that car that said, uh, one wear wrought steel wheels. Uh, but eventually, they were so much more satisfactory that they displaced the cast iron wheel. The, the the issue that modelers often worry about is uh, whether the wheels on their car should have flutes on the back or not. Exactly. Uh, page 19 of the article there, illustration 52, yep. very clearly shows the, the spirals, the flutes yep. on the back of yep. that Bettendorf. Well, the answer is it's hard to say. <laughs> that is, the later... The later the period you're modeling, the more likely you are to have wrought steel wheels. And, and they became very common after World War II. But not all cast steel wheels had those flutes. So, now, was that for heat dissipation? Yeah, well, it was for that purpose, and it was, but primarily it was there to strengthen the wheel back. Um, because those wheels were hollow. Uh, people don't realize this. Those wheels were... Uh, hollow in the center, they had a face uh, uh, towards the outside of the track, and then the inside of the track was, they, they had that often, in the case of Castile wheels, they had those ribs on there, and uh, there was air in the middle. Um, so they, uh, wheel strength was an issue, and having the ribs on there strengthened the wheel. So if I'm looking at the center portion of the wheels there, and like I said, your picture 52 in the article. 
in the area where the axle comes in, where we've got the bulge on the, the outward facing. Right. So is that solid or hot? Yes. No, that's solid. Okay. But when I go to the web of the wheel, yeah. out towards the rim, yep. then that's where that hollow chamber is. Yes. No kidding. Yep. Never knew that. Otherwise, the wheels would have been even heavier than they were, which was very heavy to start with. And again, see, that's that's unsprung weight. That's weight that just bears directly on the track. So the lighter it is, the less hammering it's going to deliver to the the rails. All right. Well, then the flutes make sense. I understand why they're there now. You know, when you look at some of these designs – like Gould's high-speed truck and uh, the Barber S5L. I mean, those look like very complicated, labor-intensive trucks. They were, and they were. The railroads were willing to spend the money on those complex uh, trucks for high-speed service uh, because, obviously, if you're going to run a, a freight car and a passenger train, for example, you really do not want that thing going off the track. No, <laughs> that's never good. That, that was, by the way, that was the problem with the uh, the Allied Cool Cushion truck, which was uh, which first appeared in the late thirties. Mm-hmm. It was a very smooth riding truck. Everybody thought it was a great invention, but the problem in time it developed, those trucks tended to go off the track. And Allied worked on them and improved the situation, but they were never, at least there were some railroads where the officials said they've never improved this truck to the point where we can rely on it and we're not going to have them. Uh, so there was a very complex, very sophisticated truck, which appeared successful at solving the ride control problems, but in fact had a tendency to derail. Now, how effective, uh, because I see some of the trucks in the development, they they had the springs mounted actually at the journals. Yes. Instead of like in center where the bolster was. Right. Was that effective? Yes. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a, a qualification there. Early in the century, uh, freight car trucks, a number of freight car trucks were developed. Uh, pressed steel trucks, for example, a Fox truck, where the springs were above the journal boxes. And the problem that they ran into with those was that if they weren't kept lubricated and serviced, eventually they would wear, and then the the journal box would tend to jam in the pedestal jaws, which was, of course, a bad thing for uh, tracking and riding college. Um, When they developed the high-speed trucks that had the, the springs above the journal boxes, the difference there Again, those cars were not in interchange service. Or if they were, they always came back to the owner within a very short time. So it was possible to maintain those trucks properly. If they were lubricated and if, and if the surfaces were refinished when they wore excessively, then the trucks with pedestal jaws and springs above the journal boxes worked fine. But if that was not the case, and it wasn't the case in cars that went offline and interchange service freely, um, then they developed problems. Because you just used the term, and I wanted to clarify it. You said pedestal jaws? Yes. Is that 
characteristic of the side frame where yes, you know, it just slips down over the uh, the bearing assembly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, and, and I think nowadays they use a little wedge that gets bolted to the side frame as a partial retention. Yeah. Yeah. And there were trucks that were uh, made as early as the 30s that had replaceable uh, surfaces. That is, they had a, basically a shim between the side frame and the bolster that would wear, and then when it wore past a certain point, they would just replace the shim. So that was a that was a fairly common feature of some of the early self-aligning trucks. Since we're talking about the high-speed trucks and so forth, so the Commonwealth, the one that ah. uh, mm -hmm. they had dropped, they called it drop equalizers. Yes. That looks like you know descriptively just a two-piece side frame. You've got the upper piece and you've got the the lower slung piece that allowed the truck, I guess, to flex a little bit over a regular uh, That's right. rail. Is that what it did? Sure. Yep. Okay. And those were developed from passenger car truck practice, as you can tell. I mean, you look at them and you say, oh, that looks like a passenger car truck. Yeah, yeah, this one has uh, springs and ellipticals, or coils and Well, that was, uh, that was the business Commonwealth was in. They made freight car trucks, uh, often heavy-duty or high-speed trucks, mostly. Mostly the, the business that Commonwealth had was uh, passenger car trucks. Now, when we get into the really heavy-duty stuff, you know, the six-axle trucks, and I'm looking at some of the earliest examples there, like in Illustration 60, what am I seeing there? I see it's friction bearing, and I see two bolsters, and no, it looks like a section. You see, you see that it is together. plain journal. <laughs> yes, I see this plain journal version, actually two pieces on each side that's riveted over the center yep. journal box. Right. Now, is that a cast side frame? It looks like a cast side it is. frame. Yeah, the, 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 the basis for the side frame is a casting. But the uh, the six-axle trucks had to bend in the middle, if you think about it. And, of course, that's or, – or there had to be some flexibility there because uh, over uneven track, they had to flex a little bit. Otherwise, they wouldn't track well. Okay, so a lot of Buckeye trucks – have been modeled both. Yes. You know, like on Athern's Blue Box Crane and other yes. situations like that. But I see this Lamont truck, which I'm not at all familiar with. I guess the capability to, you know, handle irregular track is looks like that the center wheel and axle has some kind of motion allowance yes, in there. Yes, that's right. Well, that's a massive-looking truck. Well, you know, those those trucks were designed for some very early 100-ton coal hoppers and gondolas, and they were not made in large numbers. Apparently, they worked pretty well, but uh, they weren't at all common. And when did the 100-ton, you mentioned these guys on some uh, really large coal cars and gondolas, when did the railroads start progressing on a regular basis above 70 tons? Right at the end of the 50s. Okay. Uh, and and the, the cars that really brought that about primarily, I mean, there, there have always been a, a limited number of heavy-duty flat cars and that sort of thing. But uh, the cars that were in general service uh, that went to 100 tons were the very large 
covered hoppers that were intended for grain service. Okay. And when those cars began to appear, of course, the earliest of them had plain journal trucks, and the problem was that at the speeds they were operating, bear in mind that, that heavy-duty flat cars, that sort of thing, they did not operate those at high speeds. Typically, if they were heavily loaded, they had speed restrictions on them, and they'd run at 20 or 25 miles an hour. But the covered hoppers that began to appear in the late 50s, they were operating in ordinary freight trains at, at track speed, which was often 50, 60 miles an hour. And with the weight of the 100-ton car plus its cargo, the plain journals just weren't up to it. And they had a lot of trouble with hot boxes. And the railroads very quickly said, all right, this is a case where we're going to have to go to roller bearings. And as soon as they started doing that, then they sort of threw up their hands in a way and said, okay, we'll start putting roller bearings on everything. If we're going to be buying roller bearings in large numbers and we're going to have to service them everywhere on the railroads, we might as well have roller bearings on all our cars. So that was really the tipping point. Okay, and there were even some freight car trucks at first glance, on, you know, talking about six-wheeled uh, trucks, three-axle trucks, that actually looked like what you would commonly see under a heavyweight passenger car. Yes, right. Commonwealth looks like the one photo here. Yeah. And then the next logical thing is span bolsters, right? Yes. If you have to go to eight axles, then you need the span bolster uh, and two four-axle trucks. Yeah, and that's illustrated uh, here. Wow, that is just a huge truck. Yeah, look at, imagine what the car looked like. Look at the size of the of the casting that, that makes that span bolster. They they were immense. They could equip. Uh, there were flat cars of 250 ton capacity that had those, those span bolster trucks. Not very many of them because there wasn't a need for that very often, but they did have them. I recall in the it was before I was you know out in the workforce, but in the late 60s, I think ACF had made some exceptionally large uh, tank cars that the Milton plant that used yes. span bolsters. Yes, right. And I, you know, because when I went to work there and started reading the engineering data on them, I'm going, holy cow. <laughs> yep. So I think they were LPG cars. I believe that's right. Yeah. Boy, talk about a whole other. Okay, and as we've worked our way through uh, Richard's article, the link that you want to his exhaustive uh, list of HO scale uh, freight car trucks is on uh, page 25 of the May issue. It's at the end of the article. But you click on it, and it'll take you to a PDF document. To see it, you just use your Google sign-in. Sign in. There's a uh, up in the upper right, there's a sign-in. Click the link, use your Google sign-in, which is usually for most people related back to their Gmail account. And it will bring up this fairly complete listing of trucks, including photos that are available for HO. Now, there's a second list, similar, that does the same thing for in-scale trucks. So those are both there. Well, it's been an interesting conversation. You sure you can't, uh, you don't have time to go back and do passenger cars for us? <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure I don't. <laughs> uh, I've got 
Okay. Well, there's a challenge then for somebody out there to do the daggone passenger side. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I have a couple of people in mind who could do it, and I I may uh, sort of apply a little pressure to them. Uh, you know, one of the problems for years has been that those of us who study this stuff in depth and detail um, often will want to do an article on something that we know is going to be so long that the editors of the print journals just won't touch it. So it, it's one of the great advantage uh, advantages of model railroad hobbyists that they can do things of any length they want. And Joe said this when I first talked to him about it. I said, you know, this is pretty long. You might have to do it in two or three sections and, and uh, subsequent issues. And he said, no, no, we have lots of room. We can do the whole thing. And he did. So that opens up a lot of possibilities. And I, I do hope that other people will take advantage of that. Okay. And let me clarify one thing for the listeners, too. There were a couple of times as, as Richard and I were speaking that I mentioned page numbers. Those page numbers are of the article itself. So once you go to the index, you click on page one of, uh, or the beginning of Richard's article. Those page numbers I gave you are pages of the article. So actually the article within the book is 25 pages or within the magazine. So a little clarification there. All right. Uh, Richard, I've enjoyed it. I appreciate you taking your time. Well, I'm always happy to talk about these things. You know, those of us who research particular subject in the field are always happy to share what we know with other people. So I'm I'm happy to take a little time to sit down and talk about this. And uh, some of your listeners will know I'm on the Steam Era freight car list on the Internet. When people send me individual inquiries whenever I can, I'm happy to respond to those. So, Is that a Yahoo group? Yes, it is. Well, I'm happy to do it, and uh, I hope I've provided a little more enlightenment. <laughs> well, that wraps up this month's podcast. Uh, again, I welcome Chris and Jim to the show, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy their contributions during the coming months. Lastly, I want listeners to check out the advertiser listing on uh, page three of this month's MRH. That's what it is on my PC. It may be different if you're uh, on a tablet or a iPad. But this month alone, I've placed orders with three of these companies, and that's multiple orders in more than one instant. Litchfield Station and Railmaster Hobbies are examples, and I've yet to be disappointed by their service or the product. And don't overlook the hobby marketplace on page 49 of the issue. Yet more sources for the product and services we all need for our railroad. So, till next time, thanks for listening to this month's Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast.